Why do you need to do this? Because it's what I'm good at. I do. I, I will admit that I do have World Cup fever right now. Unfortunately, uh, my job has been very busy uh, since the World Cup started, pretty much. So I haven't got to watch that much of it. I, I mean, I've watched some games on the weekends, for sure. I uh, haven't really got to keep up with it during the week. But uh, my company is kind enough to give us the entire 4th of July week off for vacation. Uh, and it's, it's well-positioned to have all of the round of 16 games and all of the quarterfinal games. Uh, between those two weeks, uh, that like oh, nine nice. day period, so I'm gonna yeah. I'm gonna really be diving deep in the knockout stages. Yeah, we've been lucky enough at my office that in the intern office we have a tele- we have a TV that we can just basically put on whatever. Um, so we just I, basically one of us puts it on at nine in the morning when we come in and leave it on there for most of the day. But it's it's been funny because one of our uh, fellow interns like doesn't really know anything about soccer, so. Half the time has been us explaining, like, who is good, you know, what is, like, where is, wh- why is this called a free kick, and uh, yeah. so, that, so that's been pretty entertaining. What, what is offsides? Yeah, sure. it, it, exactly. Yeah. Because, because, of course, you know, <laughs> not understanding soccer, he thinks that offsides shouldn't be a rule, um, and, <laughs> and, and thinks that players should just be able to cherry pick by, like, standing down at the other side of the field like they're playing for Chino Hills or something. <laughs> I mean, uh, the way some people have defended in the World Cup, from what I've seen, they might as well have been able to do that. Uh, there's yeah, uh, there is the Panama. Partic- partic- well, yeah, the Panama, but there was a particularly memorable one where I think someone tried to play, I forget who it was offside, but they, like, stepped up in their own half, and I'm like, mm, that's not how that works. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, there, there's definitely been some, some questionable, I, I, as good as some of the teams have looked, there's also been uh, some teams who have looked really bad, um, but I guess that's that's just how the World Cup goes. Yeah, I mean, also, it, when you think about that, there's, what, 32 teams in the World Cup, but, and of course, like, there's some very notable teams who aren't there, not to mention the U.S., but like Italy. Italy, yeah, Netherlands. The Netherlands, yeah. you know, some very reputable teams that aren't there, that could be there, and... I think that, yeah, you see teams like Panama, and you're like, wow, they really shouldn't be in the World Cup. And, and then you, you also think about the talks that, you know, they're going to expand to a 48-team World Cup. So, Yeah, you know, you see teams like Panama, Argentina, just, just stinking it up out there. Really. Yeah. And G- Germany for... Yeah, I know. It, it was looking for a little bit like uh, the two World Cup finalists from the last World Cup might not even make it out of the group stage, but... Tony Kroos had a magnificent oh. free kick to uh, 
to pull it out for Germany. Talk but, about uh, talk about yeah, kickstarting a dying engine. Talk about kickstarting a dying engine. Tony Cruz's free kick was just insane. But yeah, it was it was pretty special. In the, in the world of, of fun soccer facts, before we get into some fun movie facts, maybe um, that the three of the last four World Cups, the winner of the previous one has gone out in the group stage. So it's actually not yeah, that I crazy. I uh, I did see something about that. Um, and another fun one that I saw today was that uh, England in the first half of their game against Panama today, when they scored five goals, that was five percent of the goals that they've ever scored in the World Cup. It was like Harry Kane at the end of the what Harry Kane got his hat trick, and he'd already he became or not not even before he got his hat trick, just in the first half from his penalties, he he became England's third highest World Cup scorer of all time. <laughs> yeah, which really tells you a lot about the history of English football, I guess. But well, that uh, just like you think about it, the World Cup only happens every four years, and if you go out in the group stage, you only play three games every World Cup, so it's not that... That's true, which England usually does, so... <laughs> okay, we'll leave it there. <laughs> We're looking at looking at you, Rob Green. Uh, but yeah, but so in, in the interval um, between these World Cup matches, um, we did manage to have time to see a couple of, uh, of big summer movies, big franchise movies, um, which we'll be talking about on this episode. Uh, and first up, it is the latest installment in the Oceans franchise, Oceans 8. Uh, Oceans 8 comes to us a mere 11 years after the most recent installment, which is Oceans 13. Uh, and that movie concluded the original Oceans trilogy uh, films, which of course starred uh, George Clooney, Brad Pitt, Matt Damon, and Casey Affleck, just to name a few. Uh, director Gary Ross takes over um, in this film from Steven Soderbergh, who directed all three films in the original trilogy. And uh, his most noticeable change, um, as anyone, as will be apparent to anyone who's seen the trailer, um, is the cast. Uh, instead of picking things up with the male-dominated heist team of the first three films, he's turned instead to an opposite-gendered but no less star-studded cast of actresses to spearhead his reboot. Uh, and that cast includes Sandra Bullock as con woman Debbie Ocean, who is the sister of Danny Ocean, George Clooney's character in the original trilogy. We also have Kate Blanchett as Lou, who is Debbie's longtime partner, and Anne Hathaway as Daphne Kluger, a glamorous actress who is the target of Debbie and Lou's heist. Uh, As the film opens, Debbie has just been released from prison on parole, and she immediately begins planning a new job with the help of Lou and a newly assembled team of specialists that includes Rihanna as tech geek Nineball, Sarah Paulson as suburban mom Tammy, and Helena Bonham Carter as fashion designer Rose Vile. Now, their task seems an impossible one, steal a priceless diamond necklace from the deck of Anne Hathaway's Daphne while she's at the Met Gala. But Debbie and Lou learn to trust their plan nonetheless. Now, Scott, it's been a while since the last Oceans movie, and uh, to be honest with you, um, this didn't seem like a, a really a natural franchise to, that, to get a reboot. Um, it, like, I, I, don't, I don't feel like that a lot of people were itching for a new Oceans movie. Um, but bef- before we get deeper into my thoughts, um, I'd love to hear so, sort of what your general impressions were on Oceans 8. Yeah, absolutely. I think that your your thought about this not being a, a natural franchise to be rebooted, it feels fair. It, uh, when I saw for the first time, I think maybe last fall, that this movie was getting, this movie was going to come out, this movie was in production, I was like, wow, okay, like, is this, how like hard or soft of a reboot is this? Uh, it was just very, I mean, I, I get it, I think it's cool. I, I, there, there has been a trend over the last few years of these female 
reboots. We saw it with Ghostbusters, and there was another. Course, yeah. there, there was another one, I think, too, that's escaping me right now. Um, but I can't remember either. Yeah, it, it's been it's been a trend, and I think it's a good trend. I I, I appreciate it, and especially when you have to to I guess maybe. To, to call it the naysayers of, oh, there's, like, not, like, the reason that we go to, like, see action movies is because of the men in them and whatnot, because they're, you know, better action stars. And then this isn't necessarily an action movie, but I think the point is, is that there, and this cast proves it, there are tons of incredibly talented female actresses who, out there, who deserve the spotlight, and this movie gives spotlight to a lot of them, and that's something that I really appreciated. I thought it was awesome. You know, I remember how cool it was. 11, I don't know when the first one came out, 15 years ago maybe? I'm just guessing. Um, uh, it was 2001. 2001, so 17 years ago. I remember it was yeah. so cool to see like George Clooney, Brad Pitt, Matt Damon, all of those guys in one movie oh, yeah. uh, showing off how, you know, I, I mean, there was the movie was like the, the A-Team or whatever was like, oh, all these like really old actors uh, coming back to, to kind of form this ensemble cast that's that's really cool. And, and I thought Ocean's Eleven is kind of a, a an in- I guess almost almost like a hip or a hipper version of that in terms of oh these people are still in their prime and these are a bunch of really amazing actors uh, all getting together for one movie and I think it's really awesome to to show the world that you can do that with a female cast as well in terms of the movie itself uh, I was talking to you before the show but I had someone text me right after they saw the movie today too and said it was slow and I think that that's not unfair I don't know if I particularly thought that during the movie I, I thought in the times that weren't super fast paced or that took a little while to build up there was some nice humor in all the film I, I found myself laughing quite a bit in this movie and a, a lot of that was just because these actresses are really charming they they get along really well with each other in my opinion I think their chemistry is really strong particularly that of uh, Sandra Bullock and Kate Blanchett who I think are really fun to watch on screen particularly Kate Blanchett in my opinion and I think with I, the performance that sticks out in my mind are Aquafina and Rihanna, who just do a great job capturing the spotlight on the screen. You have Nineball, who you mentioned in the intro, who's this kind of enigmatic, reserved... You don't really get a good feel for her throughout most of the film, but she's always really fun to watch on screen, and I really enjoyed uh, the moments where she took the spotlight. And then Aquafina is awesome. I, I love her, and I, I can't remember what other movie I've seen her in, but really enjoyed her in that as well. And I thought her performance... Uh, her name, the name of her character, even escapes me right now. But very captivating in terms of the way she held herself on screen, the way she performed her role, uh, and also just a really interesting role as kind of this street rat uh, pickpocket who's given this job of of pickpocketing a hundred and fifty million dollar necklace. So it, it was really awesome. Those are the performances that stuck out. I appreciated that um, the movie didn't quite string as long as I remember some of the original Oceans movies going. I think that all, most of them were over two hours, but I could be wrong. Uh, this one was a little bit shorter, but it still felt too long to me, which I know is a critique that we often give on this podcast. But I literally just didn't even understand the last, like, five minutes of the movie. Like, why? <laughs> it felt utterly pointless, to, the last five minutes of the movie. Uh, not that that is... It's not that harsh of a critique, but I think that all in all, this movie probably doesn't live up to... What I, what I remember, the original Ocean's Eleven, I didn't love Ocean's Twelve or Thirteen personally, uh, but I do really have a soft spot for Ocean's Eleven, and I don't think this quite lives up to that, but I had a really good time watching it, and I think that's the, the key takeaway when you go into these more summer box office flicks. I think it's important to know what you're getting into, and we talked about this with Solo, that I think what I wanted going into it, or what I expected going into it, was 
more or less what I got out of it. And sure, that's not going to be a movie that I think should be up for awards, you know, come six months from now. But it's something that I still say I enjoyed. Yeah, I have to say that I agree. Well, first of all, I have to say that Constance was the name of Aquafina's character. Oh, thank you, yeah, um, So second of all, I have to say that I pretty much agree with uh, with your assessment of this movie. Uh, despite my, my skepticism uh, going oh, yeah. into this movie about whether we actually needed a new Oceans movie, um, I did have a good time. Um, yep. And I think that, like you said, it helps that we do know kind of what we're getting into because we've seen the other movies. Um, and what I mean when I say that is we know that, like, this movie is going to be pretty, like, like it's going to have a fun spirit about it, and there's not gonna really going to be any suspense um, in the actual heist. Like, there's never really going to be a question in the heist, because this is how it was in the original movies, too, of, like, oh, are they actually going to get away with it? It's more mm-hmm. about just watching the heist unfold and just seeing how they're able to pull everything off. Um, you know, it, it's, it's more style than substance. Um, yep. But I agree with you that that original Ocean's Eleven movie is pretty great um, and that the sequels didn't really live up to it. Um, and that's why I kind of thought, oh, this franchise maybe is a little dead and buried now. I feel like they've kind of... Um, just like George Clooney they, in the movie, dead and buried. <laughs> yeah, which is... I know, that's, wasn't that really weird? Like... Apparently, so George Clooney's movie, or George Clooney's character has apparently died, um, which is, I don't know, it seemed really strange to, like, take on this really somber tone all of a sudden in, like, the, you know, this fun-loving series of heist movies. Like, oh, yeah. all of a sudden, George Clooney's character has died. Like, I, I don't know, that came really out of left field for me. In fact, um, in the final scene of the movie, yeah. um, spoiler, mild spoilers, I guess, when Sandra Bullock is sitting in front of his, like, grave, I, I guess it is. Um, She's in a mausoleum, like, to, to get more context. Yeah. 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 Oh, I would have bet the entire house that George Clooney was just going to walk out right then, like, as she was sitting there, like, you know, saying, oh, whatever she was saying, you know, to her to her dead brother after they pulled off the heist. Well, it was something, like, um, it was some really stupid line that was, like, you'd have liked it, or, like, something like, or yeah, something yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah, exactly. That's what I was trying to think of, you know, something like that. Uh, so, I mean, like I said, I would have expected that George Clooney's character was just going to walk out right then. But, nope, he's actually dead, apparently. But um, It was very... Yeah. I can't I can't speak strongly enough, like, how just a strange tone that's set for the movie. Yeah. <laughs> when he, she um, has, like, Reuben from the original trilogy <laughs> come yeah, out to exactly. her. Exactly. The only character who appears from the original trilo- trilogy, or from the original... Yeah, from the original trilogy is Elliot Gould's character, Reuben, who's, like, the oldest one of the whole bunch. Yeah. Uh... Which, like, I don't know. It, it seemed a strange choice because, like, well, you know, even, even if you've seen the original trilogy, you might forget that this guy was even one of the characters in the movie. Well, Matt, so um, Matt, there were a couple people who saw, who shot scenes for this movie. Uh, Matt Damon, one of them, but their scenes got oh, cut. Really? their okay. scenes got cut though. So, yeah, Matt Damon's scene got cut in favor of Elliot Gould. Okay. Uh, anyway, um, uh, but yeah, but so you know, it, it, it's helpful that you know we know what we're getting into. Um, but I think that the fact that um, we have a, a, a totally new cast of characters kind of gave the, the whole uh, setup, the whole high setup that we've seen before in the other movies, it, it kind of gave it a fresh spin. Um, because I definitely did start to tire of things um, during Ocean's 13. Um, but, but, you know, now we get a, a new group of characters. It's been a while since Ocean's 13. We get a new group of characters. We get a 
you know, fun, like glamorous heist um, with a lot of celebrity cameos in it, uh, some of which are kind of good and some of which feel like completely pointless. I don't know if that was your reaction as well. Um, yeah, I mean, there's like all of the Kardashians. Yeah. There's... Olivia Munn. Olivia Munn. Really random appearance. Maria Sharapova Dakota, and Dakota Serena Fanny. Williams. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the, the list goes on and on. We'll probably think of some more. Kylie and Kendall August. Jenner. Yeah, which I loved um, Chris Jenner tweeting out, like, go see Ocean's 8. Uh, Kendall, Kylie, and Kim are all in this movie. And I was just sitting there thinking, yeah, and they're all billed lower than Aquafina. Um, <laughs> so I don't know if you should you should really be... Uh, be saying that but uh, but yeah I mean I think that the heist itself is actually and we'll, we'll talk in a little more detail about the heist I think it's it's pretty fun um, it, because you don't have to think about it a lot um, I think if you start to think about it maybe it, it comes apart a little bit well the, yeah um, so I think there's that and there's also just like if you've seen the original Oceans movies you know that like it's not worth thinking about because they're not going to tell you everything that's going to happen during yeah. the heist until after when they explain what happened exactly which I kind of, I mean, I have to say, I kind of like that. Yeah. Um, because it does, um, because it does allow for, like, those logical gaps. And because you're not really thinking, oh, here's what they have to do next. And here, they're going from this step to this step. Um, like, you're just kind of just letting it, letting the heist transport you along. And so, you know, sometimes yep. when you're just kind of, like, trying to figure out exactly what's going on, you know, you don't really think through some of the logical um, leaps that it's, it's asking you to make. And I, I mean, I know that for me, I didn't really think about some of them until afterwards. Um, but for me, uh, the highlight of this movie is one of the performances, one of the supporting performances, where, which we are going to get into um, in just a little bit. But I think that there's one person in this cast um, who runs away with this entire movie. Um, but I'll keep you in suspense for a little bit longer. Um, and first, I want to talk about uh, Sandra Bullock's performance. Um, spoiler alert, Sandra Bullock is not the person who I was talking about. Um, <laughs> but she is, I guess you would say she's the main character. Um, and she is, uh, you know, Danny Ocean's sister. Um, actually, I, I'll, I'll, I want to give my thoughts on Sandra Bullock's performance first, because I'm interested to see if you had the same reaction that I did. Yeah, go ahead. Um, but... So I'm not a fan of Sandra Bullock as an actress. Um, I, I did know this already, which is one yeah, of the reasons why I thought that... It's, uh, it's really no secret, honestly. Um, because, I, I mean, I don't know what it is. I think that her tone in the past in, in movies like Gravity and The Blind Side is just too like overbearing. It's like she's just saying, give me the Oscar. She's just begging people to give her the Oscar. Um, and it, I don't know, it feels really forced, a lot of her performances. Um so I wasn't really thrilled about seeing her at the helm of this movie. And, but I have to say, I went into this with a positive attitude. Um, you know, I, I, I told myself that I was going to, you know, come in completely neutral and just, you know, see if, if Sandra Bullock could uh, impress me and, and leave me with positive feelings when I, when I came out of the theater. And I have to say, she didn't really do that. Um, but I don't know that that's exactly her fault. Um, because for me, I think she was a, a weird choice, uh, a weird casting choice in this role. Because, like, her character is supposed to be this really sort of edgy, like, uh, you know, I don't play by the rules con woman um, who, you know, is kind of, I mean, it's, it's a hard-nosed criminal, so to speak. Um, 
And when I think about a character like that, I do not think of Sandra Bullock. Like, I don't think of the mom from the blind side. Um, or Miss Congeniality. You know, Sorry. Exactly. I, I forever yeah. associate her with Miss Congeniality. So. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, that works just as well. Um, she is, like, known for playing a, a particular type of role. And this is not it. And, I mean, I, I admire them for maybe casting against type a little bit and in, in choosing Sandra Bullock um, for this role. But I think that her performance is just really dry. Like, she just tried to be really deadpan the entire time, maybe to sort of overcompensate for the fact that, you know, everyone knows her as, like, this really lovable actress who always plays really, you know... Endearing roles. Positive, sympathetic characters, yeah. Um, and it, I mean, the comparison that I drew in my head to it was like if they had put Tom Hanks in the George Clooney role in the original movie. Um like, you know, everyone loves Tom Hanks. Like, no one is no one is doubting that Tom Hanks is a great actor. But I don't think that he has the edge necessary to play, you know, George Clooney's character. Like, I, I, like and that, you know, maybe that's a problem with this movie in general is that I don't think that it has maybe sort of the same style. Uh, it doesn't, like, pop and crackle in the same way, for lack of a better phrase, that the original Ocean's Eleven movie did. Um... But I still think there's a lot to like. I just don't think that Sandra Bullock um, is really able to save the fact that it's a weird bit of casting to put her in this role. Yeah, I, I yeah, I think that's fair. I think that she she doesn't do it for me. I I don't know if I'm. I don't actually get a sense of whether or not you you're so negative on her performance. More just the it sounds like the, the typecasting almost. Um, I, well, I, th- I, I, I mean, I do think that her performance, I don't think she helped herself with the performance, because like I said, I think that she just tried to be really dry and like deliver everything yeah. in like this really emotionless way. Like yeah. her, this character just does not show a lot of emotion in the movie. And I think she, she maybe in her head, she was thinking, oh, you know, this is, I'm try- I have to be like cool. Like I have to be like nothing phase me. Yeah. Um, exactly. And, but I don't think it worked for her. No. Be- I mean, Maybe because it's Sandra Bullock. Maybe because of what she did with the performance. Probably more a combination of both. Yeah, it usually is. And I think that that I mean that's that's probably right. I think that she wasn't the right person for this role. I mean, you can look at her partner Lou, and I think she's easily someone who has that edge. She has that role, that charisma, the suave. Far more, far more so than Sandra Bullock does, and, and like you said, I, I think it is important to be fair here. It's 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 unclear to me how much of it Sandra Bullock, how much of it is the her, you know how she's being directed, how her character has been written, how she's been told her character is supposed to act. I think I think sometimes it's very difficult to tease those things apart. I just think that I more or less agree with you. I think I I think I mean I like Sandra Bullock. I'll, I'll say that I think that I I'm much more positive on her particularly Gravity, than you are. Uh, I, I know you, you're not a fan of that movie. But I think she... she was great at speed. I'll give her that. That's Yeah, I mean, I'm glad we can, I'm glad we can agree on that. <laughs> 25 years ago, she was great at speed. Sure. And, yeah, anyway, I think that it was a tough role for her. She It didn't strike me the way I wanted it to. If they were trying to go... If they were trying to make her have the same suave and charisma of Danny Ocean, played by George Clooney, they didn't succeed, and... Yeah. And it's not even that I don't think Sandra Bullock can, could do that. I, I think there are better people certainly out there who could do it uh, for like for that particular kind of uh, uh, role. 
but I also, it just seemed to me that, that someone had told her just not to act that way. And it was very confusing because I don't think it's her, I would, I wouldn't understand why it would be her inclination to deadpan some of the lines that she deadpans. Um, and I, and her know-it-all attitude of, you know, I know where all the strings, you know, who's pulling all the strings, what all the moving pieces are. Like, like there is definitely that tone to a lot of her interactions with other characters in the film. And it's just not delivered in a good way. And maybe, maybe it's because I have a soft spot for Sandra Bullock, even though I'm not a particular fan of the blind side. Um, I, I didn't get the, I just got the sense that, that just someone had told her to act in this role wrong. I don't know. It, it just didn't seem, it just didn't seem like she would not, like she would have done that on purpose. Yeah, I definitely, I definitely think that's, that's accurate. Um, yeah, I mean, that, that goes along with what I, what I was talking about with the way that she delivers the lines. You know, I, I, I feel like, yeah, maybe you could chalk it up to someone saying, I mean, you know, probably someone considering the, the type of roles that Sandra Bullock has played over her career and saying, well, we need to do something a little different for this character. So here, try this. And maybe to her detriment, um, she did so. Yeah. Um, we don't need to dwell on it too much longer. Cause I, I mean, yeah, she, she's not a huge, I mean, to me, she's not a huge negative of this film. She doesn't, she doesn't pop or crackle the way to use your words, which I think are, is a good way to put it because George Clooney and, and some of the lead actors in the original Ocean's movie certainly pop and crackle. Um, but she's not she's not that, but she's not a huge drag on the film either, in my opinion. Yeah, I I, I will just say as a, a final coda that I did think about how good Charlize Theron might have been in this role. That was Ooh. the one person who came to my mind as like this would have been a person with the with maybe sort of the edge necessary to play this role. Yeah, I think um, I think Amy Adams could have been good too. That's yeah, me. yeah, sure. Um, but with that being said. Um, Let's move along to another performance in the movie, and we'll get now to the performance, which for me uh, was the the number one highlight of this movie, um, and it's one we haven't talked about yet, and that was Anne Hathaway's performance mm-hmm. as Daphne Kluger. Um, before I talk about why I liked it, uh, what were your thoughts on her performance? So we were going to trade roles here, and I'm, I'm actually not a particular Anne Hathaway fan. Uh, I don't know yeah. if you knew that about me or not. Um, I mean, you're you're not alone in this. I know that there are a lot of people who I actually don't even care that much. Yeah, I mean, I don't actually even care that much about all the stuff. I mean, I know she and like Jennifer Lawrence, like four or five years ago, like got into some weird like disagreements, arguments. Oh, I I don't know about that. I just mean I think some people find her as like kind of an annoying screen presence. But um, yeah, I think, but but to that point, I think that dovetails nicely with what I was actually going to say is I think that. I mean, I just have the sense, of, and t- tell me if you think that I'm off here, or, or if this is something that you noticed as well, but, like, I feel like they leaned into that perception of her in this movie. Oh, absolutely. Okay, yeah, so like, it's not just me. I've seen all kinds of reviews, and I think this is fair, saying, oh, she's playing herself here. <laughs> no, I think she is, and I, and I loved it. It was great. Um, it, was she annoying? Yeah, I mean, she she definitely was. Um, and I also, I mean, I... I don't know. Well, we'll talk about this one. I'm sure when we talk about the plot later. But like, there's a there's a plot thread that involves her character that I just like really didn't like that much. But we'll talk okay. about that in a little bit. But no, I thought her she did she did a really good job. I think that in some ways, the way you've described, I mean, this is she did a good job. Backing that up a little bit, though, I will say that for someone who theoretically she was playing herself. I didn't think, I think she forced it a little bit, like it was almost too much, and I think it was intentional. Uh, again, I think this ties back to maybe someone telling her to like really ham it on, 
Um, yeah. Which probably leads back to the director. I think I might I might come down as being like not a big fan of this director whose name I've already forgotten. Gary um, Ross. Gary Ross. Yeah, maybe I don't. Directed know. The Hunger Games, Sea Biscuit. Oh, I did. Wow, I can't believe I didn't recognize him from The Hunger Games. Uh, well, I didn't particularly love those movies either. So, anyway, um, yeah, no, I think that she. They, I think they. Someone had to have asked her to ham it on because she really did. And I got more laughs out of it because of that, because I was like, oh, yeah, this really is Anne Hathaway. Um, uh, but at the same time, there was a plot point later in the movie that, I mean, it doesn't have anything to do with her performance, but I was just like, oh. So this is the this was like one of the big twists that they that they conspired in this movie to make it work better, I guess. It was just weird. I didn't like it. But I think her role was, um, her role was good. She did a good job. I think that you're going to be more positive than I am about it. So I'll let you take over. Yeah, I just think this performance was just so entertaining. Um, like, every time there was maybe a, a lull in the action, like, whenever this character came on screen, it, like, it just lit up, the, she just lit up the screen immediately. And <clears throat> I didn't, I felt like this movie could have used a lot more humor, um, but I do think that of the humor that was in the movie, Anne Hathaway's character probably gets 85% of the good lines. Um, and, and while I do think it is a showy performance, like, I don't know that I would say that she's hamming it up like you did. And actually, one of the things that I liked about this character actually involves the, the twist that you're talking about, I think, which I guess we'll, we'll go ahead and spoil. Sure. Um, basically, we, we, we figure out that at a certain point, Anne Hathaway has joined in on the heist. Um, and and. Because, you know, she's, she's figured out what, what's going on. And that's actually what I liked about this character throughout the entire movie. I think that, actually, the twist is pretty consistent with how she plays this character through the movie. Because even though she is, like, this glamorous, like, ditzy, like, sort of ditzy actress um, who's, who has a lot of sort of bareheaded lines in the movie. She's sharp. There's all... Exactly. There's also this other layer to her performance and this other layer to her character where you're thinking well, is this just an act or, like, is this really who she is? Uh, and so I think that she, like, her performance, like, fantastically walks that tightrope um, to the point where, you know, I wasn't sure, you know, up until the reveal, really what was going to happen with this character. Um, and, you know, yeah, maybe she is playing herself to a degree, um, and maybe, you know, this, this was kind of a, a fastball down the middle for her, but... <laughs> Uh, like I, this is the best that I've ever seen her in a movie, and and one of my favorite performances this year so far. Wow, that's saying a lot. You just yeah, dang. I mean, I th- I think it was warranted. I think it's warranted, and I think that um, the audience reaction to her performance, uh, like in the at least in the screening that I saw, was I mean, is consistent with what I w- was saying. I mean, people were laughing and smiling a lot more at this character than they really were at any of the other characters. Um, and, you know, I think that there's, there is some fun, there's some fun moments of banter between the other characters, between the heist team. But like I said, I think that the most fun moments of this movie pretty much all involve this character that of Anne Hathaway. But, but, but we will talk a little bit um, about you've touched on a couple of members that you enjoyed in the cast, the rest of the cast, um, because obviously this is a really big star studded cast uh, and it, it, everyone has sort of their own role to play. So uh, were there any other people in the cast that you thought maybe stood out or maybe didn't stand out? Uh, we also haven't talked about the uh, James Corden uh, makes an appearance <laughs> yes, in yeah. this movie as an investigator. 
I I loved. I thought James Corden was great in his yeah. ten minutes on screen. Yeah, um, he was entertaining. He was very entertaining. I don't think he's anything worth dwelling on personally, but I think he definitely is worth a, a shout out because he does a fantastic job in his role. Mm-hmm. I was kind of kind of surprised uh, at his appearance. I don't know who I was expecting to play uh, that role, but he, he also is just like, yeah, I'm an insurance investigator. I just love how they just really lean into this the kind of self satire uh, yeah, in a lot like of parts. Who would expect? Who would like actually think James Corden would be an insurance investigator? <laughs> exactly, and I think that. Um, no, I think that's good. I've already mentioned Aquafina and Rihanna. I thought they both gave really good performances. I loved Rihanna's little sister in the movie. Very, very oh, yeah. funny, very funny cameo. I forget the actress's name. I looked it up, but I, I've already forgotten. Um, but that w- that was very funny. I think that Mindy Kaling is fine. Uh, unfor- I mean, I guess I like Mindy Kaling from is it the Mindy Project, right? That's the TV show yeah, she was on. Office, yeah. yeah, right. In the Office, of course. Um, but I, I haven't loved her in many of the movies she's done. Like, I, I mean, we didn't talk about this on the podcast, but I didn't love um, A Wrinkle in Time earlier this year that she was in. And she's definitely not one of the standout performances here, although she does have a few funny moments. But I think for me to touch on, you were talking about funny lines coming from Anne Hathaway, and I think that is true. I think she had a lot of the funny lines. But uh, my favorite line does, I want to, I do want to give credit to Sandra Bullock. I think she does get the funniest line in the movie by far for me. But maybe I'll talk about in uh, in uh, in my oh, favorite favorite moment. Oh, okay. I was about to say, you built up to it. You have to say it now. But yeah, oh, no, I can, can, I can say it now. If I built it up, I can say it now. No, okay, I, I just it. find the line of her in the bathroom um, before the heist. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't even know if they're like a... I think they're in Central Park. I'm not sure where where the bathroom is at, but it's like right before the high starts, and she's like talking to herself in the mirror, and she's like, "Just remember, you know, if you get caught, or j- j- like when you're doing this, just remember there is an eight year old girl somewhere out there in her bedroom oh, yeah. who wants to be, wants to be a thief, <laughs> or like a, a jewel, like a, a robber." And I was just like, so funny, hamming on the idea of this movie being, you know women uh, an inspiration to women obviously yeah. not to be thieves but to be actresses and, and to do the things that they they're passionate about but that that line just really got me i, I laughed very loud during it that wasn't that was an enjoyable line uh i will say that um as far as other people in the cast um i also agree with you that i think aquafina has a really good comedic performance in this movie i love the scene where she's showing Mindy Kaling's character how to use Tinder. Oh, that was so funny. Yeah, and she's like, no, well, now you can send, maybe send him a little eggplant emoji. Yep, um, that was good. That, I thought that, that cracked me up. Um, but, but yeah, I think that everyone, you know, kind of plays their part. Um, Sarah Paulson's, I mean, we haven't talked about her at all. She's also... Yeah, yeah, I thought she, she did a good job with her performance as, like, this suburban mom who like has his family and doesn't really want to be dragged into this, but also can't resist like the, the value of what's at stake here. Yep. Um, so, I mean, you know, I think, I think like in the original oceans trilogy, you know, either there are strong performers and there are weak performers. Um, but I think everybody, you know, plays the role that they were, um, they were cast to play, you know, for me, Sandra Bullock didn't really work, but I don't, like you know, like you said, I don't think it really like greatly hampers this movie because it's not really about the characters or character development. Like it doesn't it doesn't ask for a um, really deep 
meaningful performance. Like, you know, if you if you end up getting a great performance, like we do in this movie with Anne Hathaway, then great. But I don't. This isn't a movie to me where like a performance is really going to cost the movie because it's more about the style. Uh, it's more about style over substance, like I've said before. And on that note, um, let's talk about the heist a little bit um, sure. because that is the you know what drives the plot in this movie. Um, and you know, like like you have pointed out, they don't really tell you how it's going to go down. Um, you, you basically are just. We, we build up to the Met Gala and then we're just watching the heist go down. So what did you think about like the actual details of the heist itself? Was it enjoyable to watch? It, I think it was. I think that I, I appreciated that they weren't robbing a casino. That's something that yeah. I did I did appreciate. Um, I, I thought that the Met was a, was a really great venue for the heist. I thought that... I, I remember the, the first scene where you see all of the jewels on all the different mannequins... Is 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 a really beautiful scene. I think the the camera work. I will say actually, I think the camera work section that we haven't talked about yet, and it was pretty good in this movie. I mean, it's not going to win an Academy Award, but yeah, it's something that I appreciated. I noticed it, which I think is a good thing. Because um, uh, well, I guess you you notice really bad camera work and really good camera work, and this wasn't really bad camera work. So <laughs> um, anyway, yeah, I thought I thought that was good. I I the heist itself was entertaining i thought that the the way it would like came together in terms of the build-up for it was maybe a little slow because it it takes some time and i never thought that this movie even even though of course you already know the outcome like they're gonna get away with it i think that this movie doesn't do a very good job building tension at all like at no point I can't even think of a single scene where I was like on the edge of my seat because I wanted to see like what was going to come next. But when you, if you fast forward to the end of it, when you get the the full reveal of all the different things that happened at the very end of the movie, I was like, oh, that's that's clever. That's clever. I I appreciate the you know. I mean, we we're talking spoilers here. I like I appreciated the like submarine they used or whatever to <laughs> to get the jewels out of the pond. Um, but at, at the same time, as clever as that is, like, I don't think, I mean, obviously, this is not something you could have guessed was going to be how the heist goes down. And as clever as maybe the, the, the ingenuity is around, like, oh, how do, you, how do you steal more things or how do you steal things uh, and still be undetected? There's nothing clever about the movie-making aspect of the heist, in my opinion. And, yeah. and if anything, to tie things up, or to wrap things up into a bow, I think that the writing and the plot of this movie is probably the weakest part of it. Yeah, I, I, I think that that's fair. And, you know, you, you, you talk about the lack of tension in the heist. I mean, I think that that's something that's pretty consistent in the Ocean's movie movies. Like I said early sure. on, like I think that in these movies, we're never under the impression that these characters are not going to get away with the heist. It's more about seeing how it goes down. But with that being said, I, I mean, I still would have liked a little more tension, maybe. Yep. Like, you know, maybe a little bit of suspense. Just because, I mean, like, there are times when it seems like they're going to go down that route. Like, so the, you've talked about the bit with Rihanna's sister, but that comes about because... Um, basically a last minute complication yeah yeah exactly we find out that the necklace has to be open with a special or has to be removed with a special magnet that only like um the her personal security has um and so that you know really like completely destroys their plans to like just steal the necklace off of her 
But then Rihanna just calls her sister, and her sister like makes a copy of the magnet. And like a then, like, sixteen two year minute, old. Two minutes later, like the the complication is resolved, and we're back on. Yeah. Um, so that was you know that bugs me a little bit. And then you know, like I said, there are some logical gaps in what. That's happens. one of them. That logical. That is the one you've just yeah. talked about. Is what a huge logical gap. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, and, but I mean, I I think that because the heist kind of sweeps you away a little bit. Like I said earlier, you don't think about these till after the movie, but I still think, like, like there are some things which I thought about, like, I thought, well, if this one little thing had gone wrong, then the entire heist would have been off. And, like, to, to, to like, expect that the, all of these little things are going to go so perfectly doesn't seem like a great heist design like and the, you know the one example which i'll i'll give which i'm thinking about right now is when they actually take the necklace off of Anne hathaway's neck mm-hmm. is when she runs into the bathroom to throw up because they've laced her food um and but but they she goes into the bathroom leans over the toilet and throws up um and aquafina comes up behind her disguises like a waiter and, or as a you know a server and like just takes the necklace off of her neck under the guise of like holding her hair back and like you know trying to uh, yeah check if she's okay. Well, I was just thinking about let's say Anne Hathaway goes into the bathroom and locks the door to the stall, like then the whole heist is over because they can't get the necklace. If, I mean, Aquafina can't go in there if the door is locked. Um, well, there's now, I don't. To, to that t- was just. Yeah, yeah, no, I totally agree. And take that even further, like, it's a six-pound necklace. Yeah. Like, Um, you have to, like, I understand she was convulsing, but it's a six-pound necklace. Yeah, also we have, like, this whole other subplot with Debbie's ex-boyfriend, who is there. Oh, yeah, this is so dumb. I I was so frustrated by this. coincidentally happens to be, because at first... Oh, it's not a coincidence. It's not a coincidence. It's set up that way. Well, that's what I thought. Like, I thought it was set up, but then, like, the boyfriend, he had no idea that, like, they were involved in the heist. Yeah. I'm, am I right or am I wrong about that? What do you mean? Sorry, I'm not sure what you're asking. Like, because he sees Debbie at the... Th- this is the point I was going to make, is that he, see, he kind of, like, thinks that he sees Debbie at one point at the Met Gala. Yep. But, like, doesn't do anything about it. So, like, if I'm saying if he knew that there was going to be a heist and that he was part of it, like... Why wouldn't he have expected to see her there? Because it seemed like he was taken aback at seeing her. And so that was the, the point I was trying to make is that, well, if he sees her, and, and she knew that he was going to be there, and if he sees her, then, and, I mean, what, what's to stop him from, from going to someone and saying, oh, Debbie Ocean, the thief is here? And then, you know, that could ruin the whole heist as well. Yeah, I think that that's true. I think that it was definitely planned for him to be there. Like, they set up him being put next to Anne Hathaway at, right. like, what not, and I mean... That, that other thing. Yeah, yeah, the other event. Of course, it's, I guess, pure luck that they then, she then invites him to be her plus one. I just think the whole subplot of him is dumb and unnecessary. Like, yeah. I don't think you need... Like, I get how it's supposed to be, like, empowering to, like, you know, a big F you to, like, shitty guys who, like, treat women poorly or whatever. Mm-hmm. But it also just felt petty. In like not a empowering way. I mean, I, I'm not yeah. gonna I'm not gonna speak for women. Maybe they feel maybe pe- women who do see or some. I'm sure some women who watch this film will feel empowered by that. But I wonder if it also is like 
maybe not. The, I don't. I just don't think it's necessarily the best way to empower people. But I'm also a white guy, and I don't know if it's my place to decide what as, empowers. As what, a white guy. Yeah. And, no, and, and I mean this seriously. Like I'm not the person yeah. to decide what empowers women. Um, so it was just I was I just was curious, and I would be interested to talk with uh, women who see this movie if they if they felt that that particular subplot was empowering. Yeah, uh, it does seem a little shoehorned in, but um, I mean, my general point was just that it seems to me like the heist, it goes all a little too perfectly. I mean, of course it goes a little too perfectly. We know that that's going to happen. But to me, when I was thinking through some of the steps of the heist after the movie was over, it seemed really forced to me that they would have set this whole thing up and thought, oh yeah, this is going to be perfect. Like nothing can go wrong. Um, I just can't wait for the sequel where they, where this met, where the met finally realizes they had all of their gems stolen. Yeah. (laughs) Cause that doesn't happen in this movie. So, yeah, I, I mean, that's another, like, how did they not, rep- did they not report the other gems that were missing? Well, did so they, they really just not even notice? I mean, they're, they're still there. They used the 3D printer to... Oh, that's, of course, that's true, yeah. So it's just, it's just whenever they, ch- whenever they put them back in the vault is when they're, when they'll check them. Yeah. But that could be, I don't, I don't yeah. know how, I don't know if they would do that right after the gala or, um, or, or much later, after the exhibit's mm-hmm. over. I'm not sure. Yeah, I, I mean, I thought it was kind of a clever twist that they had also stolen all of them. Oh, no, no, gems. totally clever. I'm just, I was more just making a joke about, like, this no, no, movie no, ends without without them realizing that there were a ton more jewels stolen. Yeah. Um, so, there you go. It reminds me of the TV show Leverage. Did you ever watch that show? I did not. Okay, well, they were thieves, and there was an episode where they... Uh, they were, there was like this really expensive statue or something that was in this room at an art museum, and they were like made a big deal about how they were going to steal the the statue, and that, you know they the whole episode was building up to them stealing the statue, and then what they ended up doing was stealing all of the art off of the walls um, in the room because because this, all of the security were focused on the statue, and uh, all of the art ended up being more valuable in the end. So it just reminded me of that. That was a really weird. Uh, non sequitur but um, <laughs> with that we will uh, move into our wrap up phase um, for Ocean's 8 um, you may have already talked about it a little bit earlier but what was your favorite moment in this movie No, I, I, or, or scene yeah so I mean this movie the favorite is I, I can't apply I, I can't think of this movie as a favorite moment or a scene the same way I do a lot of other movies yeah um, because I kind of am just thinking about the funniest. Because I, I go into this just kind of wanting a, a laugh and, and to enjoy the yeah, the yeah, unraveling sure. of the heist. And, and I don't because I don't think the heist was that clever uh, in terms of or, or that intense or, or that captivating. Personally, uh, I, I can't point to that as my favorite scene. Although there were moments that were cool. And instead, I, I am going to point to this this moment where Sandra Bullock is in the bathroom trying to you know motivate herself, hype herself up for the heist that's about to happen. She's saying all these things about alluding to about to rob something and there there's this one woman who's also in the bathroom flushes the toilet and leaves uh in the middle of her basically talking about how she's about to rob something yeah. uh which is just hilarious to me and then also of course the line that i've already talked about about how she's uh she's doing she's gonna remember the eight-year-old child who wants to become a thief uh yeah. as she's doing this as inspiration for the heist so it's, it's really hilarious yeah, and I also kind of agree that it's hard to pick out an individual moment or scene, so I'm just going to go with 
all of the moments when Anne Hathaway was on screen. Um, Cop out. Because I really, I really do think that she stole this movie, though. Um, I, and I, I mean, I wish I could think of one individual moment, but I think the whole performance was just so entertaining that it, it would do an injustice to try and single out one or two moments from it. I will um, say that right before we wrap up here, uh, Helena Bonham Carter has gotten no love on this entire uh, segment. Yeah, I don't know. I could, I could have taken or left her character, to be honest with you. Yeah, I feel the same way. I will say that her Irish accent was pretty good. Yeah, I was convinced. Yeah. I'm, I'm not Irish, uh, but I was convinced. Yeah, yeah, true. Uh, I have been to Ireland, so. Um, but uh, with that, we will um, ask the final question, and that is, uh, what are you going to give this movie out of 10? And maybe, along with your score, uh, maybe just add on where you think it, it ranks in the Ocean series out of four. Yeah. Out of four, yeah. Well, okay, yeah. sorry. <laughs> Never mind, I got confused there for a moment. Out of the four <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I think that this movie is a solid 6.7 out of 10. Um, like I mentioned, some of the performances were fun. I think that there are a few funny lines. The plot is okay. And, and overall, the charisma and the cool aspect still is there. It's just not... It doesn't quite live up to Ocean's 8... Or, sorry, Ocean's 11, certainly. And I think if you're ranking them in terms of the other films, I think this one's probably... Uh, between 12 and 13 for me. Yeah, um, I'm going to give it a 7.1, so I'll be a little higher than you were. Mm-hmm. Um, mainly because, uh, again, I'll talk about how great Anne Hathaway's performance was. But I think that there were some other, uh, you know, a lot of things, other positive things in this movie that I have touched on. Yep. Um, and I, I will say that while I have not seen Ocean's 13 in a while, uh, I, I, would, I would probably need to go back and watch it to, like, actually properly rank. Um it, it with respect to this movie, um, but right now I would probably put this as the second best in the series behind Ocean's Eleven. Um, with that being said, I don't know that we necessarily need a sequel or that we will get one. Um, I don't think so. I, I mean, I don't. Th- I don't think we need one. Yeah, I think I think the the heist movie um, can can take a hiatus for a little bit. Um, well, or uh, you know, maybe not. I'm actually going to talk about another heist movie um, a little later on in the show, which I quite enjoyed certainly more than this movie um not to take anything away from this movie but uh but yeah so that um should just about cover it i think for oceans eight uh right now we're going to take a short break but when we come back we will be discussing a pixar sequel 14 years in the making the incredibles 2 be right back years after the last installment in the series but even that impressive duration doesn't measure up to the layover for our second film tonight the incredibles 2 which follows up the original incredibles movie from 14 years ago 2004 now the incredibles was of course pixar's entry into the ever popular superhero genre following a family of supers led by craig t nelson's mr incredible and holly hunter's elastigirl It remains one of the most well-loved of all Pixar movies, holding a 97% on Rotten Tomatoes to this day. However, in a rather bold move by director Brad Bird, this sequel picks up immediately where the first movie left off, with The Incredibles facing off against a villain known as The Underminer. 
Unfortunately for The Incredibles, the reality of being a super hasn't changed much from the first film. Costumed heroes are still illegal, and convincing the world of their necessity hasn't changed much. That is, until Mr. Incredible and Elastigirl meet Winston and Evelyn Dever, a brother and sister team of, of investors who are determined to shift public opinion in favor of supers. They're voiced by Bob Odenkirk and Catherine Keener, respectively. Their plan is to send Elastigirl on high-profile missions to try and win the public back over. However, this, of course, leaves Mr. Incredible with an unfamiliar duty, taking care of his kids, Violet, Dash, and baby Jack-Jack, who is starting to develop powers of his own. When a new villain called the Screen Slaver emerges, though, it's up to the entire Incredibles family to save the world again. Now, Scott, I had a little bit of an interesting relationship with the first Incredibles movie, which I'll talk about in a bit, but... First, I want to get your high-level impressions on this long-awaited sequel, as well as maybe where you stood on the first movie as you went into this one. Yeah, so I think I'll actually start with where I stood with the first movie. I sure. remember loving it as a kid. I, I admittedly have not seen it at all recently. Um, I, I did quickly read like a plot summary before going to see The Incredibles 2, just to uh, kind of you know, kickstart my, my Incredibles movie knowledge. Because uh, it's been that, I mean, I hardly remembered any of it at all. Uh, it's been so long. But I did really enjoy it. Uh, clearly not enough to go find it and watch it again. Uh, but I did really like it, and so I was really excited about seeing The Incredibles 2 because not only did I really like The Incredibles, the, the original one, I, I know that it's also, you know, beloved in that, and, and widely considered to be one of the best Pixar movies of all time. Uh, just because of, it, it is a little bit different for Pixar, it's a different genre, uh, there aren't that many, uh, we'll say, Disney Pixar superhero like like really you know to use your your metaphor from earlier, but you know fastball down the middle uh, superhero kind of movie coming out of Disney and Pixar that I can think of. Of course, you have all your DC Marvel animated movies, uh, which are the same genre, but The Incredibles always felt like something different because you know as awesome as so many Disney Pixar movies are, they're not usually in this. They're not usually in that genre in particular, and so I was really. And as a fan of the superhero genre in general, now I'm, uh, that made me even more excited. And going in, I like I said, I, I had kind of refreshed myself on what happened in the first Incredibles, although I didn't rewatch the movie. And to talk about the negatives before I talk about my positives, which I think there are many of this movie, I thought this movie was basically, uh, in terms of the like structure of the movie and the plot, was basically the same as the first movie. Um, yeah. Which, take a, I mean, that's definitely a negative. Uh, to watch the same thing twice is not that interesting. I do think that they make enough changes uh, to make it more, to make that not a detrimental flaw. And the second, and it kind of ties into the first point as well, but, like, everything in this movie is very predictable. I think that I saw literally coming from a mile away, like, the big, the big villain reveal. Um, I'm sure you did as well. I'd be surprised if you didn't. Um... Not to say that I, yeah. I'd be surprised if not everyone caught on to it, but just I know that, that you have a particularly keen eye in movies for for these sorts of things. And uh, I... Oh, well, thank you. Thank you so yeah, much. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> that's that's the best compliment I've ever given you on this podcast. Yeah, <laughs> probably true. <laughs> and, yeah, anyway, so I think that those are some notable flaws. I think those are the most notable flaws for me, uh, and I think that to, to kind of also be the defender of The Incredibles 2 on that front... I do know that its production cycle was chopped off by more than a year because they actually originally Toy Story 4 was supposed to come out this summer. 
and Incredibles 2 was going to come out next summer, and they flipped the release dates. So Brad Bird had literally a year less of production than he had originally anticipated, which I think, which I think did hurt a lot of the things that he maybe had intended to do that would have mixed things up a little bit more. That, I mean, that's not to say I'm sure like the plot is still roughly the same, but I think more character development, more that would have made some of the uh, some of the plot more interesting, definitely would have happened. It would have been more refined, a little bit more polished. Uh, that being said, I really like The Incredibles too. It's it's not a perfect movie for the reasons that I've just listed, but it's so much fun. I I could not uh, I couldn't come up with a moment in the film where I wasn't either you know it, like into the movie. I was I was really engaged most of the time, or I was laughing because this movie does still have a lot of the uh, humorous takes. Uh, you know, it's not a comedy by any. I mean, I wouldn't call it a comedy by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, not in the same light as I would like the the core comedy genre, but it's it's funny. I enjoyed it. I thought that uh, particularly, of course, as always, uh, is it Edna? That's that's the character that Brad Bird voices. Edna Mode is steals steals the movie just like she did in the first voiced one. Voiced by Brad Bird. Yeah, voiced by Brad Bird. Um, steals the show uh, for me, a- and you know, even if at times I thought that I found the movie a little bit preachy. Uh, and definitely a weird social commentary on screens, yeah. <laughs> on technology. Um, I still found the movie quite endearing. The characters are great. Um, Jack Jack is hilarious uh, to to watch his powers develop on the screen. I thought that the internal uh, struggle, or sometimes external struggle, of Mister Incredible is is pretty entertaining and interesting to watch. It, it, even if um, they really kind of lean into some of like the uh, macho male dad stereotypes at times I, I think that they do ultimately come out on the more positive side of that and then i thought it was cool that that holly hunter's elastigirl get got to take center stage uh, as opposed to the last movie where it was more mr incredible i will say that mr incredible what he goes through parenting in this movie is like what charlie theron goes through in tully basically um it's like the male version of that it's like it's like if if uh, her husband in Tully had to go through what she went through. Hilariously, um, it, I'm trying to imagine, is it Ron Livingston doing... Ron like, Livingston, yeah. <laughs> yeah. which is just hilarious to me. That's basically what Mr. Incredible goes through in this movie. But, um, I, yeah. so, sort of where I stood going into this movie, I mean, when I was a kid, um, my whole family was big into Pixar. Like, we loved Toy Story, we loved uh, Monsters, Inc., we loved Finding Nemo. Uh, and I, when I say we, I mean, like, not just my brother and I, like, my parents also really enjoyed these movies. Um, and that speaks to how great these movies are, I think, is that they appeal to both kids and parents, as I think the best animated movies should. Um, but then, so then, I mean, you know, Pixar was on a big role with those movies that I named. Then in 2004, we get The Incredibles. You know, my mom, my brother and I went to see it. I still remember going to see it in the theaters. And we came out of the theater and we were like, it was good. Um, you know, it was the first of these Pixar movies where we, we weren't, like, blown away. Um, and and for that reason, like, I had never even seen The Incredibles again. Um, I, I watched it when it came out and that was the only time I've seen it. Um, I remember the original Incredibles movies being, uh, it felt really long to me. Yeah. I, I mean, this one is for a animated movie most of which run under 100 minutes this one is almost two hours no, isn't, um, it, isn't it two hours five minutes i think it's a little short it's probably include that probably includes the short film at the beginning yeah 
Sorry, but, keep going. Uh, yeah, so I, I don't know what it was about this movie, uh, about the original movie, probably because I haven't seen it in so long, um, that you know didn't click with all of us, really, but it didn't click with us. Um, but with that being said, I know how well-loved this movie is. I know there are a lot of people who think it is um, the best Pixar movie. Uh, so I, you know, going into this movie, I thought, okay, I'm, you know, going to kind of wipe the slate clean because maybe, you know, maybe it, I just couldn't appreciate The Incredibles like when I was younger. And maybe if I went back and watched it now, um, I would enjoy it a lot more. And, and uh, you know, on that note, maybe I will enjoy this one a lot more. Um, however, I have to say, I pretty much feel the same um, coming out of this movie as I did all those years ago when I came out of the first movie. And maybe that's because, like you said, this is basically the same movie as the first movie. So I was pretty much uh, predisposed to come uh, come away feeling the same way, uh, even though I have I have learned a lot in the 14 years um, since then. Yep. Uh, I, I think, you know, I mean, Tennessee was actually good back when they made the last movie. Um, so a lot has changed, obviously. But, um, but yeah, so, I mean, I think that for me, the technical stuff is really good. Um, the action scenes are, are great. They're like, the animation is like spectacular pretty much in these, um, yep. in these action scenes. Like they, they stand up to any action scene in any big budget, non-animated movie. And unless I'm um, mistaken, there is a lot more superhero action in this film with all the other yeah. supers involved. So I, I, that's something that I really appreciate about the movie. I, I don't know if I've talked about this to try, to try and draw a parallel. That's one of the reasons why I really loved Fantastic Beasts. There was so much more magic in that movie because I thought that was one of the yeah. most underexplored aspects of the original Harry Potter movies. They just didn't show that much magic. And I really yeah. appreciated that this movie showed a lot more action uh, from the superhero perspective. So I, I, for characters like Void, for example, it was so cool to see her powers get used quite often on the screen even to the point of is it is it reflux is that the, the one super's name like i think so yeah, yeah. it i just thought it, the animation to your point and also just seeing more of superhero power animation in this movie is something that i really appreciated about this movie yeah so i mean i do think the action scenes were good um and and very well filmed um and I, I mean, I think that my favorite thing about the movie, maybe, and I gave this away a little in my tweet, was the score by Michael Giacchino. Yeah, it's who wonderful. Does all of the Pixar scores? Um, this has got to be some of his best work because it is it is superb and it's like really like triumphant and it, it goes along really really well with uh, every scene in which it's used. Um, definitely one of the best scores I've heard this year. Um, but when I go like see a Pixar movie. Um, you know, the main two things which I'm expecting to see are humor and I'm expecting to see like heart, heart, like hard or, or, you know, some sort of profound profundity, like in the, in the final moments. I mean, you know, Toy Story three is like the perfect hallmark. Like it, it, it is the, those final moments are like as profound as any movie animated or not animated that you'll see. Um, and that's, you know, that's what I expect. Um, from a Pixar movie, something that's going to be fun to watch, but also that like is going to touch you or is going to hit you at a different level than you'd expect from like, you know, a boilerplate kids movie. Um, and I think that this movie was lacking in both departments, unfortunately. Um, the humor, you know, you said you laughed a lot. I didn't really, um, Interesting. I think okay. that a lot of the jokes were kind of aimed at kids. Um, 
And are there particular you know, ones but, that come to mind? Well, yeah. So, the, so the stuff with Jack Jack for me did like it completely fell flat. Um, and I, I, I understand. I'm probably going to be in the minority on this. Um, you know, a lot of people were laughing at these moments mm-hmm. in the theater. Um, but for me, like you know, this whole this running gag of seeing Jack Jack get his powers, and you know, they manifest in all these crazy ways. He turns into a demon, and he sets himself on fire, and all of this crazy stuff. Um, well, to to be yeah. to be more explicit about what the parts that I thought about Jack Jack what were so funny is. I think just in terms of his powers is him being used as like a laser gun was really yeah. funny to me. I just found that hilarious. Uh, the, um, th- that's just me. Uh, and then also uh, m- everything else kind of ties back to Edna, but I thought his suit was really cool. Um, yeah. The, uh, what the, is la- the lavender foam or whatever to use to right, extinguish right. him. That, that puts out the fire that I actually did enjoy the parts with Edna, um, which yeah. unfortunately don't come until pretty late on in the movie. Um, but, so, in the humor department, it, it just didn't really get me. I thought that, like, you know, Dash is obviously kind of supposed to be a more comical character. Um, but I thought he just kind of came off as the annoying little brother. Um, and, like, not in a, not really in an amusing way, uh, mm-hmm. to me at least. Um, and then, you know, in the other department, which, you know, I talked about, I don't think this movie was very heartwarming or profound. And I think a lot of that goes to what you were talking about with how much action is in the movie. Um, yeah. they, they don't really take a lot of breathers for, and, and kind of let, they don't really let the story breathe a lot. Um, they, they really just keep the plot moving from set piece to set piece. Um, and there's not enough of like focusing on, you know, maybe the relationship between the family. Yeah. Um, or I agree with that. Know, that's that, that's it. That feels like a fair critique. I'd say the, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, some sort of deeper realization never happens in this movie. And even at the end of the movie, which is usually, you know, like I was talking about Toy Story 3, that's where it really hit me. Like, this movie just kind of ends. Like, they, you know, they they win, and then there's like a two-minute scene where Violet, you know, has gotten together with Tony. There's like a running gag uh, during the movie about this this kid who... (laughs) Violet, he, he sees Violet take her mask off at the beginning of the movie, which it's funny to me that, like... No one can under no one realizes who they are because um, it's not like their masks are like the uh, the most the greatest disguises that have ever um, ever been created. Uh, mm-hmm. So it's funny to me that he couldn't even realize it was Violet until she took her mask off, which is really just like a eyepiece. Um, but so he sees that and then his memory gets wiped. Whatever. But then Violet actually likes the guy or whatever. But so so this is what it comes back to in the final two minutes. And there's a scene where they're going to the movies, and then another villain shows up, and they drive off to go fight the villain. Uh, and that's it. Like, there's not really a moment of, like, oh, we, you know, like, like I'm talking about with the, with the family relationship. Like, I, mm-hmm. I, I wanted this to be, I wanted this to say something more profound uh, and maybe more touching about, like, family relationships, especially because of the way that it, it you know, does kind of break down the gender roles. Mm-hmm. Um I think and that, like, yeah, I mean, to, as as an attempt to, I think, both solidify and slightly counter your point, I think that the moment where it, it does try to to have a moment, I can think of one at least, in the movie where, where they try to have this deeper realization, and I was touched by it. I also don't think it 
anywhere reaches the level of Toy Story 3 or even a Finding uh, Nemo. And that is yeah. when I think you see Mr. Incredible just totally exhausted, wiped, collapsed, and he, you know, he collapses on the couch next to Violet and says, oh, I, you know, I've just really messed up. I, I'm not being a good dad. I tried to make things better and I met and made it worse. And that was touching at the same time, to your point, they, you know, it's almost like someone at Pixar or Disney told Brad Bird that he has to have a scene that's touching in the movie. And so they insert it in there. Uh, And it didn't necessarily, it didn't feel out of place, but it also didn't didn't feel feel, organic as in other movies. Sure. It did. It didn't feel like it naturally fit in the structure of the movie Mm -hmm. uh, to your point. That that being said, I, I still think the scene was touching. Uh, it just wasn't the same level that you expect for Pixar. I think one of the big differences between maybe you and me is that I just I don't expect that in my in, in okay, Pixar movies. Like I don't, I don't go into a Pixar movie and like all right, I need something really touching. I mean, I haven't seen Coco from last year, which is also a Pixar movie. I mean, yeah. But uh, to me, that's what set, sets Pixar apart in sure like what they do. Sure, that, that's fine. Uh, because but, like I, I think it's it's easy to make a you know, fun animated movie that kids are going to enjoy. Sure. Um, but I think it's 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 a lot more difficult to relate, you know, what is ostensibly a kids movie to adult themes of like, yeah. you know, in, in the case of Toy Story three, like you know, leaving home and like having to leave your family. Yeah. Um, you know, go go off to college. You know, it obviously resonates with people our age and also with parents. Yeah. Um, so I think that that's. No, I, I think that's fair. I, I think it's totally... It, to have a deeper meaning and to have a, a, a more robust commentary on, on some major life is like certainly a plus for a movie. But I, but I don't think that it should take away from... from th- this is just a personal opinion. Obviously, people can disagree with me. But I, I'm, not, I'm not going in saying, all right, because this is an animated Pixar movie, if it does not have this thing, this movie isn't... Like, this, is, this isn't as good as it, as it should be. Right? It's, like not a, it's not a negative for me, so to speak. And it sounds like it is for you, which I think is fair. Like, like Pixar has made a reputation of yeah, exactly. creating that's, that's, movies. That's, that's kind of my point. Is that it's just you, you've come to expect that from Pixar. I mean, every one of these movies, Up, obviously has an unbelievably touching sequence. You know, with with mm-hmm. Carl's wife dying. You know, yep. Ratatouille has this amazing ending. Like Ratatouille is is might be my favorite Pixar movie. Um, that you know the last scene where Anton Ego eats the Ratatouille is like a beautiful scene. Inside um, Out. I mean, Inside Out from a few years yeah. ago. Exactly. I mean, yeah. so like every single one of these movies, like, and I mean, it's how Pixar has able to been able to build their name. Yeah. So I mean, I, I mean, I also right, to, to your point I though, like, I think right. I think that all of these movies that we're talking about are better than The Incredibles too. But yeah. I'm not gonna like roast Incredibles two for not having a touching moment. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not, I'm not roasting it. Like, you know, that that's not my intention. I'm not, I'm not trying to say that this movie sucks because it doesn't have a movie, it doesn't have a scene that makes you tear up. Mm-hmm. Um, but that is why, to me, that I was not very satisfied. That is one of the reasons why I was not very satisfied. And also, I think that they set this movie up to where it could have one of those moments because we do have this. Uh, you know, gender role reversal. Like, Mr. Incredible has to do the role that we usually, you know, associate Elastigirl with doing, which is taking care of the kids that we that we usually associate the woman with doing. Yep. Um, and on the flip side, we have 
Elastigirl, who's kind of like taking the forefront as the hero, when usually it's Mr. Incredible or the male who is like seen at the forefront of the action. And so I think that there was a there was a good setup there for them to, you know, ultimately both come to a realization that, hey, what you do is not that easy. Um, and like, you know, gain a greater appreciation for the other person's role. Yeah. Uh, I think that that's really how they could have gone about it. And, you know, they probably could have achieved something more profound in the end. Um, but I don't think that they, they really did that. Like, we never get a moment of Mr. Incredible saying to his wife, like, you know, oh, I, I don't know how you do it. Or, you know, something something to that effect of where he he's clearly expressing that he appreciates like the role that she typically serves in the family. And like, you know, he, he, he couldn't appreciate that before. And likewise, you know, the same with, with Elastigirl, um, playing the, the more, uh, you know, on, on, in the forefront of the action role, um, that we usually would associate Mr. Incredible with. So I think that they, they set it up for that, but the payoff just never came. Yeah. And and to be fair, like, Maybe Brad Bird just isn't that director. I mean, he's someone who does action movies like Mission Impossible. Like he did Mission Impossible, Ghost Protocol. Um, he did Up, though. Well, I was going to... No, he didn't do Up. He did Ratatouille. Uh, that okay. would be the one exception. Um, up was directed by Peter Doc- Pete Doctor, the same person who did... Pete Doctor, in, yeah. The same person who did true. Inside Out uh, did okay. Up. I knew that he had done a Pixar before that I really liked, Brad Bird. Yeah, yeah. So he, he did Ratatouille, which would be the one exception to what I'm saying, but... He's yeah. just—he's also. I mean, like I never just—I mean, besides Ratatouille, right? Like I, I never found him to be like a, a director who, is is tackling touching roles. Although he also did the Iron Giant, I guess. So I'm not sure. Maybe. Yeah. I, maybe I'm eating my words here. You'll eat them and you'll like it. <laughs> yeah, I'll eat the Ratatouille. It's fine. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but okay, so I mean, we've kind of we kind of shared our general thoughts there, um, for better or for worse. So why don't we talk maybe a little bit more about some specifics. Um, what did you think about the, the performance of the voice cast in this movie? Obviously, we have the same four actors from the original, same five actors if you count Jack-Jack. Um, uh, no, no, we don't actually. Sorry, I'm going to correct you here. It's not, oh, the, it's we, not the same voice actor. a different actor playing Dash, uh, Jack-Jack? Uh, different actor playing Dash. Oh, interesting. I did not realize that. Yeah, they went uh, for someone younger, which kind of makes sense because yeah. the, if the, the I don't know who played Dash in the original movie, but I'm sure his voice has matured by now. Um, yeah, and you think of Dash as being like a really youthful character, so that makes sense. Um, yeah. But of course, you know, we still have Craig T. Nelson as Mr. Incredible. We have Holly Hunter as Elastigirl. Uh, Samuel L. Jackson, of course, we haven't mentioned him, but yeah. he returns Frozen. as Lucius slash Frozen. Yeah. Um, we, and then Catherine Keener and Bob Odenkirk are sort of the new players in the equation. So what did you think about the voice cast? Were there any standouts to you? Yeah, I've never really thought of, like, these, I, I guess, like, Disney or Pixar animated movies as having standout voice acting. Like, that's not why I watch them. I mean, yeah. like, I could, I, I could talk about my favorite Pixar or Disney movies. Like, one that's more recent, like Zootopia from a few years ago, which I know isn't Pixar. But one of my favorite, one of my favorite animated movies, like, it's not because of the voice cast. <laughs> Uh, yeah. I just don't go into these, ty- which is which is strange because we, we've we've talked about animated movies already on this podcast. We talked about the Isle of Dogs, and and it has a remarkable voice cast that is definitely one of the things that pops for the movie. But that's just not something that maybe I don't know if I just don't notice it that much in these kind of 
film, in, in, in particular like Pixar, Disney, animated movies, or, or what it is. But there isn't one that like really pops. I mean, Holly Hunter's vo- voice is always one that's stuck in my head because I think it's so recognizable. Uh, oh, yeah. But... I mean, Samuel L. Jackson is also Samuel L. Jackson. I mean, like the voice, it's not. I'm not, I don't mean to say that the voice acting isn't spectacular in the movie. It's just not something that I ever really pay closely attention to for some reason. Uh, whereas yeah. I would in other movies. But I mean, Frozone is a memorable character with a memorable voice because Samuel L. Jackson's voice is is memorable. It's not necessarily it's iconic. A, yeah. uh, it's iconic, absolutely, and it's not something that you necessarily expect in a movie like this. But it is, and and you know, to touch on someone we were talking about, like Edna's voice, which is which is voiced by Brad Bird, is you know, I mean. Am I wrong? It has to be the most iconic voice in this franchise. Like, Edna as a character is probably the most iconic. Mm-hmm. Um, no, I, I think that's fair. Yeah. yeah, like, cult classic and is fantastic. At the same time, like, if, I, if I'm giving, like, a 30-second review of this movie to someone, I'm not going to talk about the voice cast. Mm-hmm. So, I, I don't know if your perspective is a little bit different than mine. Yeah, I mean, I think, no, I, I, I think I pretty much agree. I think that everyone sort of serves their purpose. Maybe, maybe you know, because this is a movie... I guess ostensibly targeted at kids more. We don't think of the voice actors as having a particularly difficult job to do, which probably isn't doing them enough justice. But yeah, probably not. Um, to be fair, though. But but you know when you think about it in comparison to something like Isle of Dogs, like you mentioned, which obviously is not a kids movie. Um, you know maybe <laughs> maybe not. we tend to think about that on a more high level and like you know think about the voice acting more. Um, yeah. So I, I I don't know if if that plays into it at all, but I did think that Catherine Keener. Um, had a good performance as uh, what's her name, Evelyn, um, who eventually is revealed as the villain. Um, Spoiler. As the screen slaver. Um, and I think that, I, I mean, I always enjoy her as an actress uh, whenever I've seen her in something, and I think that uh, she she did a good job with this character. Um, I don't know if I could point to one thing about her performance that made it stand out to me, but I did come away thinking about her performance as, you know, being one that struck me more than some of the others. Yeah, I think that's fair. I'm not sure that I have too much more to add than I already have. It's just, mm-hmm. for, for me, the voice acting is good. Uh, it's not something that I'm going to walk away from the movie and be like, oh, this movie has incredible voice acting. Uh, I, I think that is that's pretty much the sum of what we're saying. Um, now let's talk about uh, maybe a little more in depth about what I enjoyed the most about the movie, which is the technical aspects. You know, the score, the Definitely. action scenes. Yep. Um, or the, were there some more specific things you want to talk about that you enjoyed in that area? I mean, I, I can only echo your praise for Michael Giacchino's score. It's spectacular. Uh, Um, I don't remember, like you, I haven't seen the Incredibles movie in a while. Not, I mean, I've seen it more recently than you have, but, uh, not recent enough to, to really know the finer details. And I wonder if I went back and watched the incredible, the original Incredibles movie now, whether I would, whether the score was also just as good there, but this is, I mean, this is fantastic. Like the the music is just incredible, uh, in this movie and, and incredible. Uh, Yeah. Pun not even intended. Although I will say that I, Cringed in excitement every time they came close to making an incredible pun in, in the movie because uh, yeah. I'm just really into bad puns. I think um, anyway, I think that you've covered a, a lot of the things that I've the technical aspects that I really enjoyed the action sequences. I, I've talked at some length already about how I appreciated the extended sequences or, or, or more frequent sequences of superhero powers being animated 
uh, beautifully on screen uh, and to wonderful effect too. You know, not not every single one of the extracurricular supers or the peripheral supers, however you want to call them, uh, are have the coolest superpowers, and you don't see them for that long. Like there's nothing particularly cool, I guess, about the lightning bolts that um, I can't remember the, that particular super's name shoots. But at the same time, like the ones that I have mentioned, I think Void is is really cool. I think that uh, Reflux is really cool. And that's something that I really appreciated uh, about this movie, getting to see it a lot more. I think that there's probably more to be said about, you know, the the particular sequence, if we're talking about the the, the climax of the movie with, with them turning the boat around... To, to prevent the boat from crashing, like that sequence with Void and Elastigirl and then also Frozone. And that whole sequence is really, really fun to watch and it's entirely because of the animation, because of the action. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a wonderful scene. I really enjoyed it and obviously Michael Giacchino's score to go along with it as well. Yeah, and I will say about the action scenes, although we do have like you pointed out, a lot more use of superhero powers. I also think we see Brad Bird's influence a little bit because I did feel like these were uh, some of these action sequences, particularly there's one with the runaway train involving oh, yeah. mm-hmm. um, Elastigirl, made me think of like Mission Impossible, James Bond type action sure. sequences more than thinking about superhero movies. And I actually think that Michael Cicchino's score plays a big part in that because it, it, it is it does resemble more of a score for like a, a, a spy movie than you would hear in like you know the avengers or something um so I, I you know i think that there was a good balance of superhero action scenes and also just like more organically exciting action scenes i agree yeah i brad burt but i mean from since he directed the first incredibles movie he directed mission impossible i, I believe he directed ghost protocol if I'm not mistaken. Uh, yeah, which I which I th- I feel comfortable saying is the best Mission Impossible movie thus far. We'll see if we reevaluate that in a month. Um, okay. I like Rogue Nation more, but yeah, maybe I'm getting the two mixed up. When they stop numbering them, they they I don't know. I don't remember which yeah. ones which. Ghost Protocol was number four. Rogue Nation was number five. Okay, a conversation for us to have in a month's time when we talk about Mission Impossible. Yeah, um, which I'm excited to do. Oh, absolutely. Anyway, I think that you definitely feel the action sequences. Uh, the mastery maybe maybe is too strong of a word, but like the refinement of action sequences uh, and, and Brad Bird's influence. To your point on that sequence, I think also the scene that I was just talking about with when you have Elastigirl kind of firing up to the plane and, and then saving Evelyn's life as she falls from the plane. I think those are all sequences that surely received influence from direct influence from Brad Bird, and I'd imagine also his time directing action movies. Um, Has he directed another action movie besides Ghost Protocol? I'm trying to think. That's a good question. I am not certain on that. Uh, I think his only other movie since Mission Impossible besides The Incredibles 2 was Tomorrowland, so probably I don't think we'd describe Tomorrowland as an action movie. Would we? Yeah. Probably not. Sci-fi mystery adventure? I did not see it, um, it's yeah. Well, anyway, keep going. You're you're. I'll throw the ball over to you. That I think. Let's hear about what you the technical parts that you really enjoyed. Well, yeah. I mean, I think I think I've kind of said my piece. I enjoyed the the music, obviously, the most. And um, I mean, I think the action scenes were good. Like I've said, I think that it probably relied too heavily on them at the expense of 
you know, maybe making this a more deeply felt movie or at least, you know, making the plot a little more than just a rehash of the first movie. Um, Cause like, you know, even you, you did admit that it was pretty telegraphed where this plot was headed. Oh yeah. No, um, I, I'll raise my hand and I literally thought from like the second scene with the Deavers, I was like, all right, one of them's definitely it. And it's probably not the guy. <laughs> so, yeah. So, so talking more about the plot, um, if there's anything more to say, really, was there anything to you that were there, were there any elements of it that distinguished it from the first movie for you? That distinguished it from the first movie? I mean, it's hard to say the plot, right? I think it's the, some of the themes, maybe. I think the theme, yeah. the theme which then bears itself out in the plot of Mr. Incredible having to wrestle with being, like, really taking on the role of being a parent and, and not, and, and even more than that, not the quote-unquote, like, primary breadwinner of the family when you have a last yeah. girl after doing the mission. I think that's something that you really see him struggle with, and, and you see that manifest itself in some of the subplots, uh, with him trying to take care of Dash and Violet and, and Jack-Jack. So in that sense, I think that does distinguish itself from the first movie. At the same time, like parenting was a was a plot line in the first movie as well. Mm-hmm. So it's not a unique plot line in that sense. I think it's what makes it unique and sets it apart is that it, it flips the gender roles on its head, and you have uh, the, the subplot with Mr. Incredible really trying to wear the, you know, the number one dad shirt and help... You know, whether it's helping Dash with his math homework, you know, uh, or, I mean, trying to help Violet with her boy problems, which to, to not much success, or just taking care of uh, an infant child. I think that that's something that it sets itself apart, not from necessarily its content, but from the theme that underlies the content. So I don't know if that really answers your question or not, but I mean, that would be the main differentiator for me. Yeah, I'll say briefly, too, on the uh, Mr. Incredible Parenting Um uh, Fred, I really liked the animation of like the way they they made him like look, have bags under his eyes and like five o'clock shadow or whatever. Like they did, they did a really good job with the animation on Mister Incredible, like really showing how he was feeling the full weight of having to parent these kids. Um, but yeah, I mean, the plot didn't do much for me, or, or you know these these themes really that you're talking about. I don't think that they did as much as they could with the gender roles. Because ultimately, like, everyone does have to show up to solve the, you know, to to solve the problem, to defeat the villain. And, like, you know, Elastigirl makes it a little ways, like, successfully. But then, you know, she gets kidnapped and Mr. Incredible has to come to her rescue. Um, So, I mean, I feel like they didn't do as much as they could have um, with well, that potentially like subversive idea. Yeah. I mean, I think I, I'm going to push back against that. Cause I think that the, he has to come rescue her and then like he doesn't rescue her and then it's their kids save them. Like yeah, th- that's not a that's subversion true. of gender roles by any stretch. I mean, I'm not going to argue and say like, Oh, they still subverted gender roles. Cause the, they didn't, but they didn't like actively subvert their subversion of gender roles either. Yeah, yeah. I don't think. And I, and I thought it was funny that you have, if there, if a major theme of all of the, like, both these Incredibles movies is, like, being a parent, it's like their children save them. So there's, like, a subversion of that one. If, if we, we could talk about that if you want to. I don't know if there's really much more to say than that, but I, I yeah. do want to push back. I don't think that they, like, undermined their own uh, questioning of gender roles. Yeah, ultimately, I, I don't think that they did either. It did just strike me in the moment um, when, Miss, when Elastigirl did get 
captured and it's like, oh, okay, well, here comes Mr. Incredible to the rescue now. I mean, even though that's not really what ended up happening, mm-hmm. like in the moment I was thinking, is this really like what they're going to do with this? Like, I mean, that, that gonna... would have been so disappointing if that's what they yeah. did with um, But even so, I still don't think that they did what they could have um, with... Um, sure, I don't with think this I, idea. I think I think across the board with like mate with few exceptions of the score being one of them. Like this movie had room for improvement, and yeah. I do want to say that like I wonder how much improvement would have been made if Brad Bird had another year. Yes, so. uh, that is an element which I did not know about um, going into this movie, and may, maybe explain some of the issues that I had with. Movie. Maybe, maybe not. I, I don't want to use that as an excuse, but it, it's a curiosity yeah. that I have about, you know, where this movie might have ended up. Yeah, and I mean, I, but at the same time, you know, it, it has been 14 years. Like, he's had plenty of time to develop this movie, I feel like. So, um, yeah, I'd be really know. interested to hear. I mean, I'm not, I don't mean to like t- defend Brad Bird here. I'm just curious about yeah. just like how Pixar does these things. Like, how, how much of this is brad bird's vision and how much of this is like a creative team at pixar yeah that's that, a, uh that's a that's that a query that you can't answer yeah, yeah. <laughs> unfortunately not um but why don't we move into the to the wrap-up phase now for this movie Let's um do it. and do you have a favorite moment or scene that maybe you haven't talked about or, or that you want to reiterate uh again from this movie yeah absolutely I, I i do i've i've not strategically avoided talking about it but I, I've only briefly mentioned it, and that is the scene with Edna. I think the scene with Edna, just like in the original Incredibles movie, anytime Brad Bird gets to flex his voice acting muscles as Edna is a true pleasure. And then I just loved the scene with when you see, I guess it's after he comes back to pick Jack-Jack up the next day, you see what Edna has been able, the, the suit Edna has been able to make for Jack-Jack overnight and you get the whole display and if I had to pick one particular moment it's actually it was one that I think that was in one of the trailers for it so it's kind of cheap in some ways to pick it as the particular moment in the full scene but the the line where it's like combustion what's that it's fire Robert (laughs) Uh, (laughs) yeah it's funny I do think that Edna probably gets some of the lines which did make me laugh in this movie like there was another one too um where she's describing how she enjoyed her time with Jack Jack and there's some other stuff she says, but she ends it by saying like, Oh, we deserve each other. Oh yeah. That, that was, that, really that, funny, that was yeah. kind of a funny line. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm going to go with the sequence that I've already mentioned, which is the, the train action scene, mm-hmm. um, which is kind of like Elastigirl's first like mission that she has to go on after, um, this meeting with, uh, with the Devers. Um, I thought it was a, a really well-staged, exciting action scene that, you know, made me think of some movies like, like Speed, which has already come up. Um, but yeah, I, I, I always like action scenes that involve trains. I think they're usually more often they're, they're better. Um, which Mission Impossible movie had a train sequence? Was that Mission Impossible 3? Oh, gosh. Um, I think it was Mission Impossible 3. Probably. The one with um, Philip Seymour Hoffman. The one with Philip Seymour Hoffman. That would be the third one. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so that's, that's the, uh, that's the one that I will go with. Um, okay. And now how about your score? And I mean, you know, maybe also you could add, um, where do you think this ranks among Pixar movies? Maybe, I mean, you don't have to give us a number or anything, but like full ranking of all Pixar movies ever. (laughs) Tier wise. Yeah. Tier wise. You think this is an upper tier, maybe in the middle or at the bottom? 
Uh, I'm, I'd have to pull up a list of all the Pixar movies. I don't know if I've even seen them all. Um, Score-wise, uh, I think this movie comes in solidly at a 7.6 um, for me. I think that, to give a little bit of context, I think right out of the theater, I would have given this movie like a whole point higher. And I think that this movie's shine wears off a little bit um, mm-hmm. with some time for it to ruminate. Uh, I think what's really happened is that I've talked you down with my uh, brilliant arguments. I mean, I mean, I'm sure that's part of it. But if, if I if I was doing this I, podcast I was, with someone, I was kidding. I was kidding. No, no, but at the same time, like I'm sure if I talked to someone on this podcast who gave this movie a ten out of ten, like that would be, I probably wouldn't have come down as far from yesterday yeah. right after I've seen it. That being said, when you really sit down and you think about the similarities of this movie to the first one, and also uh, it's. You know, it's not necessarily fulfilling its potential. I think those are things worth thinking about, and I think that uh, that shouldn't take away from the really positive parts. And I think that we've talked about those in good detail. I think that you know, even if I didn't say that the voice acting is necessarily memorable, it is a good part of of this movie. And the score is spectacular, and the animation, as always from Pixar, is just phenomenal. Like you cannot say enough good things about the animation uh, that that Pixar produces, film after film. I don't think that's true for this movie, too. And, and so a 7.6 seems more than fair, if not even a little bit low for me. But that does give a little bit more context. And and if I had to rank this in, in the terms of, of the Pixar movies that I'm familiar with, I, I'd probably have to put this one in the middle tier. I wouldn't put this... like If the first Incredibles was in the top tier, which I'd have to reevaluate just by probably going and, and watching, rewatching it again. Uh, because I, I do love... I mean, like the, the top Pixar movies for me are, are like Inside Out. Uh, more recently. I haven't seen Coco yet, so I can't speak to that one, but Inside Out was an incredible movie. I absolutely adored it. I've seen it probably too many times, to be honest, and, you know, you you mix that in with Finding Nemo. Uh, You mix that in. I wasn't a big Monsters, Inc. fan personally, but... Oh, I loved Monsters, Inc. Yeah. I mean, like, I'd probably put this above Cars. I'm not a big Cars fan. Um, Yeah. But, you know... This doesn't. This doesn't touch Toy Story. It doesn't. I. I think it's just as good. I'm not a huge Monsters Inc. fan personally, so it, it, it ranks above Monsters Inc. for me. But it doesn't. Blasphemy. Well, okay, sure. That's <laughs> maybe. Maybe we'll have a special animated movie episode of this podcast yeah, where we go. can go into. Or maybe no, that's perfect. We this could be a discussion topic one week. We can talk about animated movie franchises one one week for a discussion there, topic. I'll just say there's nothing in this. Uh in this movie that comes close to matching the comedic brilliance of put that thing back where it came from or so help me which is the song that mike wazowski sings and um in monsters inc iconic yeah man it just doesn't it doesn't strike me the same way it strikes you apparently i don't know <laughs> yeah i was i was kind of kidding but also okay i wasn't sure whether you were or not <laughs> well no that's it, it is a great it, it is a great gag from that movie um yeah no, anyway, but back to the point. I think this is this is in the mid tier for me. Um, yeah, you know, I'm just trying to think. Like this is above the Good Dinosaur for me. Like, yeah. Okay, well, okay, well, some people like that movie, Scott. Sorry. <laughs> um, uh, it's, I mean, I haven't, I haven't even seen it, but. Oh, okay, I mean, like, I think that this pro- this movie's like probably about as good as A Bug's Life. Maybe that's blasphemy to some people. Um, you know, I I'm not a fan of Cars personally. Wally, I don't really remember. Uh, Up, I don't really remember. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's in the middle, in the middle. Yeah, I'm coming in at a six point five on this. Dang! Um, wow. 
Ugh. Were you expecting heart. higher? Uh, no. No, I mean, I knew you were going to come in lower than I than, yeah. than me. Um, I'm just surprised. Uh, that, yeah. I mean, I think it's it's fine. Like, did I did I talk like, you up at all? Did I talk you up any? <laughs> if you talk me down, did we uh, did we meet the middle at all? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you you definitely did. Uh, <laughs> okay. Uh, your kids will like it. Um, it's a good for movie. Sure. I think. I yeah. You know, I don't think there's a lot for parents to enjoy, unfortunately. Yeah, well, I'm not a parent, so I can't I can't speak for them. Uh, thank God. Yeah, that's true. Uh, <laughs> okay, well, adults in general. Yeah, sure, um, sure, sure, sure. I think that this still this still is like a worthwhile movie going and seeing, in my opinion. I think that to to the point that I was making just a moment ago, this movie I think does shine well when you see it. it it's only after where I think it, you can see through the cracks maybe a little bit more than you can typically in a Pixar movie. Mm-hmm. So it's it's enjoyable yeah. if not memorable as one of the best Pixar movies. I mean, if you like the first one, you'll probably like this one, because they're pretty much the same. Yeah, yeah uh, that's fair. But for me, it's in the bottom tier of Pixar movies, just because, you know, they've made so many great movies um, that when they make one, even like this, which isn't a bad movie, which is just kind of average, maybe even slightly above average, when they make one like that, uh, it still sits in the bottom tier for me, because, you know, they, they're consistently putting out such good work. Um, sure. so, so yeah, um, Fair I enough. think that should just about conclude our discussion of the Incredibles two. Uh, when we come back after another short break, we'll be talking about a few other movies we've seen recently. We'll be discussing the latest in the world of the Schmodown, and we'll be breaking down a few news items before we close. Be right back. Absolutely. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah, so the first movie I want to talk about um, is a, a movie that's been getting a lot of buzz, um, and that is the horror movie um, Hereditary, which is the latest from A24. Um, and if you, you, you're not familiar with the production company of A24, um, basically think of a great independent film you've seen in the last three or four years, and the chances are pretty high that a24 is behind this movie uh, they've produced everything from ex machina to ladybird to the florida project um and you know pr- like i said pretty much every great independent film that you can think of uh, moonlight also they want a best picture for that um yeah so they they've really made a name for themselves and they've also made a name for themselves in the horror um universe uh the past couple of years a couple of years ago of course they came out with the witch which was a big hit um, and then it comes at night last year, um, which was another very successful um, and acclaimed horror thriller. Um, and now they have this one, Hereditary, which has been generating a lot of buzz um, and has been getting a lot of great reviews. Um, and so I, w- I was really um, excited to see this movie um, because I do enjoy 
almost all of A24's movies that I've seen. And I have seen quite a few of them. I was going through the list the other day on Wikipedia, and I was, like, amazed at how many of them I'd actually seen. But, um, you know, some people have actually gone as far just to compare Hereditary to The Exorcist. And I don't think that that... I think that's probably a little overboard. Um, But I do think it is a very strong movie, particularly for about the first... Uh, hour and a half of it's well over two hour um, running time the basic setup for the movie um, is that uh, Tony Collette stars as uh, Annie she is uh, a wife who is uh, re- still re- reeling from the death of her mother who was this kind of strange um, woman who dabbled a little bit in the supernatural um, and so, so while that's hanging over her head, uh, another tragedy in her family happens. Um, and following that tragedy, um, the remaining members of Annie's family uh, begin to experience some, uh, shall we say, sinister um, and, and supernatural activity from beyond the grave. Um, and that's, you know, again, I don't want to say too much um, because I definitely think this is a movie worth seeing, whether you're a horror fan or not, really. Um, but alongside Tony Collette in the cast, we also have Gabriel Byrne, who plays her husband, um, and Alex Wolf, um, who plays her son. Uh, of course, you may be familiar with the name of Alex Wolf from way back in the Nickelodeon days of the, the Naked Brothers Band. Um, or or more recently on the Schmodown, which we'll talk about later. Of course, yes, his celebrity match with John Roca on the Schmodown. Um, but. He and his brother Nat Wolfer, of course, the stars of that. Nat, we've seen him in some movies um, in the past few years, Paper Towns, Palo Alto, um, stuff like that. And now Alex um, is starting to, to make a name for himself as well. And I actually think he gives a great performance in this movie um, as a character who really goes through a lot, um, both physically and emotionally, um, over the course of this movie. Uh, and I, in general, I think the cast is great. I think Tony Collette really liked gives it her all in this role um and there's a, there's a real suspense to her character because well i don't want to say too much because there's there's uh there's some there's some layers to this character and you're, you're not really sure about what her motivations are at certain points in the movie which definitely adds a layer of suspense um and then of course we also have ann dowd showing up as this woman who uh who annie befriends um who is also experienced some tragedy um in her own life and they kind of bond over that and and their relationship um goes to some interesting places but uh yeah this this movie um i think that it it falls into some cliches a little bit in the supernatural horror genre of i think it just relies on too many of the tropes of this genre whether it's like seances and creepy children and stuff like that that i feel like i've seen in a lot of movies um, recently, whether it's the Conjuring series or the Insidious series, um, and, and there are some others as well, um, that really kind of lean heavily into these tropes. And I think that, you know, I wanted, I was hoping that Hereditary would sort of uh, do something a little fresher than that. Um, however, I think that by fusing these familiar elements with like the family drama that we see, uh, going on uh, in the first hour and a half of this movie um, because it's a very emotionally like wrenching family drama um, just out 
outside of the whole supernatural element of it. Uh, so I think that that adds something that maybe you don't usually get in these types of movies. Uh, and I think, you know, again, when you add that with the quality of the performance um, and the quality of the filmmaking from director Ari Aster, um, this is definitely a cut above um, most horror movies um, that that I have seen um, recently. However, with that being said, I, I still think we are living in a really good time for horror movies. And I think it... it I, I think that's maybe one of the reasons why I'm not more overwhelmingly positive on this movie. Uh, I think it, you know, it speaks to how good horror movies have been recently that I'm not freaking out more about this movie because I think maybe six or seven years ago um, I might have been when when you know the horror movie landscape was a little bit different. Um, but yeah, this is this is a great movie, um, and I think that if you're a horror fan. It's definitely a must-see, and if you're not a horror fan, I still say give it a try because I think it's it's a fun watch. Uh, you know, in the last 30 minutes, it I think the plot gets a little too unwieldy. Like uh, it, it lost me a little bit. I'm still not quite sure that I know exactly what has happened when this movie ends, um, but it has some really really memorable moments and, and memorable performances along the way. So I would give it probably probably about an eight out of ten um, if I had to rate it. Um, I think it, it's it's definitely one of those stronger entries that I've seen in this genre recently. Awesome. Yeah, I know. I mean, we've, we've talked about, and I mean, definitely off here. I'm not sure if we talked about it on air before my, I'm not the biggest horror movie fan. I mean, yeah, I think there's a particular kind of horror movie that I can get into. And there are other kinds, uh, particularly ones that I think lean like heavily on the horror tropes that you're talking about. that just like really don't do much for me. Um, it, it sounds like, I, I haven't seen this movie. It doesn't look like I'll have I'll I'll fit it in at least not while it's in theaters. Uh, if it still even is, I know it's kind of getting yeah. pounded out of the theaters by by other larger releases that we. I mean, we've talked about two of them on this podcast, but yeah, it doesn't really sound like a movie that would be for me. And and it did get a lot of hype going into it. I, I remember we were texting back and forth about the its Rotten Tomato score before yeah, before it officially released and it still has a very strong score i believe yeah and i don't know the box office numbers but i have a feeling it did pretty well for an independent film that doesn't really have any discernible stars um in the cast yeah um, i mean i know personally when i went to see it the the showing that i went to was packed um yeah. which you know i was a little surprised to see that but also i was encouraged um i, I know that, that i that people are turning up for it I know that, I mean, you and I, we see a lot of movies, so th- this might be biased because we see a lot of movies, but I feel like they, 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 for it being an indie film, it was marketed very heavily. It was marketed very well. Um, I, you know, I think that the comparisons to The Exorcist maybe came from the trailers as much as anything. Um, so I think that, you know, in, the, in that sense, they market it well. And then I just think that, like, word of mouth maybe, and, and you know, I, th- I do think that the critical acclaim maybe played a part in it. Um, yep. And people uh, I see this movie, but I definitely think that's true. I mean, I mean, you look at. I, I think I think that more and more these days, movies that are like people might be on the fence about that aren't like huge. I mean, to some degree, you might even say even even with some huge box office releases, uh, this is true. But I think I think a bad Rotten Tomato score can kill can kill a movie pretty yeah, quickly Rotten these Tomatoes days. Has really changed things because you know, in, in ten years ago, you would have had to actually go look up and go get a newspaper basically if you wanted to like read a review of a movie um and so people were more likely to just say well i'll go see it and, mm-hmm. and yep. yeah, but obviously 
obviously that's changed with the with the advent of things like Rotten Tomatoes and Metacritic. Um, changed for the better, in my opinion. But you know, that's a that's a that's a large debate. Um, yeah. That we can have it another time. Um, Agreed. But the the so the second movie, um, which I want to talk about, um, is. I, I think I texted you after it's over and said it was my it's my favorite movie that I've seen this summer, and I think that that's that's still true um, a week or so after I've seen it. Um, and that's a movie which I have mentioned before on the show, mentioned on another episode during the when we talked about our top five anticipated movies. This was a movie that was on my list, uh, and that's the movie American Animals, directed by Bart Layton. Um, so did it live up to to your anticipation? Is my question? Yes, it certainly it certainly did. Um, and I again, this is something I this is a movie I don't want to say too much about. Um, number one, because I know that you're still interested in seeing it and maybe seeing yep. it soon. I plan on um, seeing it this weekend if possible. Yeah, um, but number two, I think it just in general, this is a movie that you can appreciate more the less you know about it. Um, and it, it so like you know to, to give you the bare bones of it really like it, it is a heist movie um it's based on a true story actually it's not based on a true story <laughs> that's that's actually how the movie opens up with the these opening titles that say this is not based on a true story and then a second later it says this is a true story um <laughs> which is kind of clever um so it is a true story of four guys four college students at transylvania university in kentucky yeah, who buddy. decided to uh rob the special collections library at transylvania which contained um a, a number of uh of very expensive and um acclaimed works by john audubon the, the famous naturalist um which that, that that's the real reason why they they want to uh, rob it. I know when I say they want to Fa- rob famous for the Audubon library. famous for the Audubon Birds of America to be precise. Right. Yes, yes, the Audubon Society. Yeah, yep. a, lot, a lot of a lot of uh, well known things. But yeah, I know when I say that they want to rob the special collections library in Transylvania, it sounds really random, but that's the reason why um, they they target that. Uh, you know, aside from the fact that they simply go to school there. Um, but so the four actors who play a role in this heist are um, so we have we have Barry Cogan. Um, he plays one of the so there there are really sort of two main characters, and then there are the other two characters, the other two members. We meet a little bit later on in the heist when they figure out that they're going to need more people in order to pull off the heist. So we have Barry Cogan um, who plays Spencer, and then we have uh, Evan Peters who plays Warren. Um, and they're kind of these polar opposite characters like Warren is kind of this loose cannon who, you know, does whatever he wants. Um, you know, it is kind of, uh, notorious for being very irreverent. Um, and, and Barry Cogan Spencer is, you know, kind of more reserved. Um, you know, c- kind of, you know, he's kind of a person who you pass by and not really think anything of. Um, but, you know, interestingly enough, and that's one of the things that I like about this movie is that um, it kind of plays with these roles a little bit because it's it's Spencer who kind of first gets the idea to pull off the heist. Um, and, you know, Warren, of course, goes along with it because it, it kind of goes along with his personality. 
but as you know as things develop we see things shifting and it, 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 it's very interesting and again I don't want to say too much but the uh, the other the other characters who eventually join in on the high star uh, Eric who's played by Jared Abramson and then Chaz who's sort of this uh, really rich like meathead type um, who like is always on rowing machines and drinking protein shakes and all this stuff um, and he's basically recruited because he has a nice fast getaway car and he's a good driver um but he's played by by blake jenner um of glee and everybody wants some fame uh and also and dal um here she is again um appearing in this movie she plays the librarian who is kind of the, the one obstacle uh well i say one obstacle but uh there there are many obstacles in their path and that's one of the things that another thing that i like is that the heist is really interesting because there's a there's this dynamic of well how in the world are you going to rob this library in the middle of the day like on a college campus like it just seems like it's it would be impossible to pull off and and you know pull steal all of these oversized books but on the other hand like there's basically one librarian and out standing between them. And so it, on the other hand, it seems like almost too good to be true. Uh, and that's actually, you know, how they're able to recruit like uh, Eric and Chaz into the heist later is they're like, look, just look at how easy this is going to be. Um, and of course it doesn't end up being that easy, uh, but I don't want to say too much more, but um so I think that the heist, you know, the traditional heist elements of the movie are, are really interesting and, like, very suspenseful, certainly way more than Ocean's 8. Um, you know, there, there are different types of movies, so I'm not, you know, again, I'm not knocking Ocean's 8 in that area. Um, but this, this, there is very palpable suspense during the heist in this movie. Um, and but, but what I think really elevates this movie to something more than just a fun heist movie, I think, is the way that... Bart Layton tells the story, and I, I, this is kind of the part that I really don't want to spoil because it was. Th- there's something interesting that he does. There's an interesting direction he takes with the storytelling that uh, I didn't know about going into the movie, and I think, I think I really appreciate it um, because it's it's not something. It's not not a not a method of storytelling that you really see in these types of movies very often, uh, and I think that it it made this movie something a lot deeper and more meaningful than a traditional heist film. And, and, you know, I really took away some like rather lofty themes of like, you know, heroism and mythology. Like, I think that the way that he tells the story, um, is very clever. And, uh, again, it really elevates this movie to something more than it may look from the trailers alone. And I think, it goes along with Bart Layton's last movie, which was a, a documentary called The Imposter, um, that I think also had a, a very unique way of telling its story, um, and 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 a, and a way that was that is not actually just too dissimilar to the way that he tells the story in American Animals. Um, so yeah, this movie is a lot of fun. Um, it's it's opened in a, a lot of theaters now. I think um, I you know with with so many big releases coming out, I don't know how long it's going to be there. Um, but I definitely, I, I mean, I absolutely think if you're even the least bit interested in like the trailer or how I've described it, then go check this movie out in theaters, you know, and support it because um, 
I had a great time. But also, you know, it, it leaves you with some things to think about as well. And, and very good performances from the whole cast as well. So it, it's, it's a good one. Well, we will revisit this next episode when I have seen it, and we can maybe put a put a quick score on it then and, and discuss the what you're alluding to. As, as I, I do appreciate you not ruining it for me, since it sounds like it has a, a big effect. It had a big impact on you when you saw it. So yeah, and you know, and again, I think for for everyone who is thinking about seeing this movie, don't don't read reviews. Don't just certainly don't read about the true story. Um, certainly don't listen to our review of it. <laughs> Do what? I said, certainly don't listen to our review of it. You're so yeah. <laughs> um, because I'm sure that there are some review, some reviews that are out there that probably spoil some of the stuff that I am trying not to spoil um, here. So, so yeah, just uh, just base your base your um, decision about whether to see this movie uh, solely on what I've just said and not on anything else that you may read. Um, yeah, uh, and so so. That's, that was the second movie I wanted to talk about. Um, and then finally, uh, I want to touch on a, a movie that was uh, been generating, also been generating some buzz uh, on the in the Netflix universe. Um, and this is this is a movie that I think you've also seen. Um, mm-hmm. It is a romantic comedy called Set It Up. Uh, and this movie, um, I, I kind of like. So I, I, I saw the trailer maybe a few weeks ago. Or no, I, I so I mean I saw first just read about the movie, um, and I was actually kind of intrigued by it because I really enjoy both of the main actors in this movie, Zoe Deutsch and Glenn Powell. Um, they they started together in Everybody Wants Some, um, which was my favorite movie from 2016, um, and and then uh, you know Zoe Deutsch has been in some other movies that I've enjoyed. Um, like Before I Fall, um, Flower, which came out this year, and I have to say is, is actually not that great of a movie, but I think <laughs> that she gives a great performance in it. And, like, she she's so far and away the best thing in that movie um, that I came away probably feeling more positive than I would have if a different actress had been in that role. So, I, you know, I was intrigued to see how they would, uh, they would play together because in Everybody Wants Them, they don't really share any scenes. Um, Zoe Deutsch's character is kind of the the love interest, in fact, for uh, Blake Jenner, who's in American Animals, his character in Everybody Wants Some. Uh, so he, they don't really share a lot of scenes, but I, you know, like Glenn Powell's character in that movie is, is my favorite character in the movie. So, um, you know, I, I was really excited to see how they would work together. But then I saw the trailer for this not that long ago, and, you know, I thought, oh, this kind of looks like a pretty stereotypical cliche rom-com like i'm not really sure about this and i kind of decided maybe against watching it or you know taking some time before i decided to watch it but then um this movie came out on netflix and it started getting um i mean it got some good reviews but also like audiences and people on twitter and everything were really just going off about how great it was um and how like charming the two of them were together. So I thought that I, okay, I think I, I guess I should give this a try. Um, and you know, the setup, no pun intended, um, is not not particularly like terribly original. Um, so Zoe Deutsch and uh, Glenn Powell play two assistants, um, and uh, Zoe Deutsch, uh, her, she's an assistant to Lucy Liu's uh, character, who's name i'm not remembering now but um, kirsten yeah uh 
as she is like a, a sports journalist, basically. Um, and, and Zoe Deutsch is also like an aspiring, her character's name is Harper, um, is also like an, an aspiring sports journalist and like really admires this Lucy Liu character. Um, but she's kind of a horrible boss uh, to, to um, borrow the title of another movie. Um, and, and likewise, Glenn Powell uh, is an assistant to uh, Rick, played by Tate Diggs. Um, and I'm not exactly sure what business he's in. I can't remember. Finance. Um, he, 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 I think I'm pretty yeah. sure he's like either some banker or um, something like that. Yeah, it, it's it's. Pretty, I mean, it's not. They don't really go into it very much. But um, Glenn Powell's character, Charlie, um, he also kind of has a miserable time with his boss, and you know, he's constantly working late hours. Um, he ends up neglecting his girlfriend, who's like a supermodel, because. Um, she's not, she's, she's also horrible though <laughs> yeah yeah oh yeah, yeah absolutely like there's the one scene where um his roommate played by pete davidson oh my asks God. him like pete davidson is great uh, in this movie played played by mr ariana grande pete, pete davidson but, um <laughs> he asks him like you know so what do you like about her and he just like can't even come up with anything um or, or like what you know what do you two have in common and he can't he can't come up with anything so she is kind of horrible which she needs to be because of course we know that these characters are going to get together but but first what their goal is uh is actually to set their bosses up um because because their bosses are so awful um they have like a chance encounter one night and they think well maybe if we could set our bosses who are both single up on a date like then we would have more time to like enjoy ourselves and like actually have lives. Um, and so they go about like conspiring uh, to like get them together and it kind of works. Um, you know, don't want to spoil anything, but of course, you know, we know because this is a romantic comedy that, uh, the two of them, that Charlie and Harper are also going to start, um, developing some feelings for each other. Um, and, so while I don't think that the plot of this movie goes anywhere interesting uh, or anywhere anywhere terribly interesting, um, I really enjoyed this movie. Um, and I think that it's really all about the main actor, the you know the, the two lead actors, Glenn Powell and Zoe Deutsch. I think that this movie, I mean, I, I, I laughed a fair bit in this movie. Um, I think that the, the script by Katie Silverman, who I think um, has done some sitcom work in the past, perhaps. Uh, I might have just made that up. but um, Well, she, if, she, if she has, she literally doesn't have a Wikipedia page, so can't have been that oh, serious. okay. I'm probably wrong. But, um, but she gets a lot of good laughs in this movie. Um, like, you know, there, there are a lot of, a lot more jokes that, that land, I think, than in your average, you know, rom-com like this. Um, but like I said, it, it really all, all boils down to these actors, and I think that they are so charming together, and that um, their chemistry is like, just, you know, it, it explodes in this movie. And um, I think that really when you're thinking about these types of movies, you know, you're not you don't go into them expecting, like, Christopher Nolan like plot complexity. Um, <laughs> you're you're expecting like, like like you're hoping that you know you'll you'll see two likable characters get together and that maybe you'll laugh a few times along the way. And I think that this movie delivers that and then some because I mean you know I, like I said I think that the uh, the main actors the t- the two lead actors they aren't just charming like I think that they completely won me over 
Um, and and I think that this movie does again ha- have a lot of uh, have a lot of laughs. I mean, more jokes land than than fall flat, at least for me. Um, so I think that this is honestly like a perfect Netflix movie, and I think that's why a lot of people have really responded to it because it's just a great like fun relaxing watch that you can put on on netflix you know turn your brain off and just enjoy it for what it is um so yeah i I absolutely think if you have netflix then check this movie out it's it's i had i had a really fun time watching it yeah i i think that i enjoyed it less than you did i found fewer of the jokes landing maybe or if, if they landed they just felt really really like cheesy and forced i mean that being said like I still thought the movie was pretty funny at times. I mean, I'm particularly... You, you said this movie was all about the leads, and I think that is true for the most part. I mean, if you don't like the leads in this movie and you don't think that, that their charisma and their chemistry work, then you're not going to like yeah. this movie, like, period. That being said, Pete Davidson has some wonderful moments in this movie. Yeah. And I, I wouldn't even necessarily describe myself as a huge Pete Davidson fan, but he just crushes it. And I'm I'm thinking of particular the end of the movie when uh his gosh glenn powell's uh boss charlie's boss uh rick comes to charlie's apartment it's the very end of the movie and he's asking him basically for his ex-wife's like contact information or no 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 he's asking him for like the things that she likes or, or whatever, like a, a, yeah. like a little black book of things his ex-wife likes. It's very strange. Yeah. And Pete Davidson's character, whose name escapes me at the moment. Um, yeah, I, I think, can't remember it either. Yeah, I think it's like, oh gosh, Duncan maybe? Uh, I'm not sure. But he he gets back from, he clearly had just been out at a like getting coffee, comes back and... He like I think Charlie had told told Rick that he was going to on Monday or whatever because Charlie has quit at this point that he's going to um, give him his little black book of, of what his ex wife likes and, and then Duncan comes up and says oh hey Rick and then turns to um, turns to Charlie and is like you still work for this guy Charlie goes no and then just throws his coffee on him yeah this <laughs> entirely full cup of iced coffee onto him and just like. Total deadpan, and I just died. It was the funniest point in the movie for me. Great scene. That being said, like I thought this movie was really slow to start. Yeah. Uh, for me, it didn't it didn't hook me right away. I mean, I think the chemistry. Well, you don't really see them on the. Sc- they have like one one brief scene at the beginning. It's how they they first meet or whatever. Uh, I'm referring to Harper and Charlie. Yeah. And I thought that that's more about setting them up for how how they're gonna. Exactly, yeah. Up and get together. Exactly. So, and I don't think their chemistry is immediately apparent from that scene, and and I think it takes a little while to fully uh, sink its teeth in to me. I think it takes a full half hour. Like it probably wasn't until the Yankees game that I really felt like, yeah. oh, that's I, I'm I'm starting to understand this, and that's like a full half hour into like a ninety or hundred minute movie. Like that's pretty significant yeah. to me. And I think that's fair. Uh, I mean, I, I guess I just kind of trusted where the movie was going. Yeah, and especially, like, regardless of where the movie is going, once once you really start to see the, the, the chemistry and, and the vibe of Charlie and Harper, I, it's it's hard not to want to finish watching the movie, even if ultimately yeah. I, I think that it's a, it's a solidly average film. Uh, good, definitely not great. And 
I think what people have been saying and what people have been praising it for is that it's a great Netflix movie. You said this yourself, and when I was reading some reviews, that's what a lot of the reviews said. And I think that's that's dead on accurate. I think that this is a perfect movie for Netflix, but that doesn't make it a great movie, in my opinion. Um, to, just to keep things in perspective. Yeah, but also not to like, not to downplay the, the quality of the movie by just saying it's a great Netflix movie, because I think there are a ton of crappy rom-coms which sure. get released in theaters. Yeah, um, no, definitely. That don't don't measure up to this movie at all. Um, so I think that yes, it is a, it is a great Netflix movie in the sense that you know you ju- you can just put it on, turn your brain off, like I said, and you'll have a good time. But I also think that it is just a good movie in general, um, especially in this genre where we seem to increasingly get a lot of tired, cliche movies um, between characters that maybe aren't the most likable. Uh, I, th- I don't know. It, it, it felt fresh, even though I knew that it wasn't, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I, I, think, that's, I think that's a totally fair comment. Okay, so um, yeah, those are those are the three movies that I've seen recently. Um, I think you know, as you gathered from my reviews, they are all worth seeing. They probably all fall in, in very different niches for for certain people. Um, so I think that um, whoever you are, whatever your preferences are, um, when it comes to movies, probably one of these three movies is going to appeal to you. And I hope that you'll check out all three of them because I think all three are worth seeing. Um, but I, I hope that uh, I hope that I have inspired you to go see at least one of them uh, if, if you haven't uh, checked them out yet. Uh, and so with that, um, I think we will transition into a little bit of uh, schmodown talk. Um, we have had some uh, well, it, it, it's been three what three weeks since our last show. Um, which obviously is, is a long time in the world of the showdown. Um, a lot, a lot has happens over three weeks, um, and this three weeks has been no exception. Um, and I think the, just to hit on a few of the the major points, I think the place to to start um, is obviously with the five horsemen reveal, um, which some are calling the greatest moment ever in the showdown. Um, and I think that. You know, we so so we, we had been hearing for some time now that the four horsemen were going to be reassembling. Of course, the uh, first iteration of the four horsemen was John Roca, Matt Nose, uh, William Bibiani, and Robert Meyer Burnett. Um, and they weren't really very successful as a faction, like top ten lost the team belt, Bibiani went through a rough stretch, uh, RMB lost the inner geekdom belt. Um, so they kind of broke up pretty quickly. But, you know, Roka and Nose have been teasing the return of the horsemen. And so, you know, there's a big question about who are the other two horsemen going to be. Um, and we ended up getting the reveal at the live event, um, which happened at the El Portal Theater at the start of this month. Um, amazingly, Christian was able to get the people who attended the live event to keep the, to, to avoid spoiling this reveal for like over a week and a half. Um, so shout out to all of those people, but it truly was an epic reveal. Like I was actually cheering like aloud when I, uh, when the reveal finally happened, basically what we see is that, um, after the team action Shire Wolves team match, um, which was won by the Shire Wolves, 
team action returns to the stage. You know, they're do, doing their usual stick. We have Andrew Guy going off about how he killed Dan Merle, um, which he's been going off about really since the free-for-all. Um, and that he and Ben start doing this little bit where Ben's pretending to be Dan Merle. Um, and all of a sudden, the lights go out. Um, and we see four hooded figures appearing on stage. We know this is the Four Horsemen, of course, and everyone's going crazy. The first person reveals their hood, it's Matt Nose. The second person reveals it's Sean Roca. So then we're into who are the other two horsemen going to be. Next we see Jason Inman, who was someone that a lot of people speculated was going to be in the horsemen, um, the current Intergeekdom champion. And then revealing the fourth and final hood was uh, someone who I don't think, I, did, I didn't really see anyone predicting was going to be a part of this. And that's because he was retired uh, going into this match, and that is a former singles champion, Mark Yodi Riley. Um, and a former rival of Roke, I think, is another, which is another thing which makes this reveal surprising, uh, as the fourth horseman. However, um, so the four of them had been holding up the four fingers for the four horsemen, but as Yodi was revealed... They're, they all move to a five, and we're holding up the number five as if to say, well, there's another horse which has to be revealed. Lights go out, we hear the shining music, and when the lights come back on, there's one more hooded figure, Roka throws off the hood, and of course, it's the goat himself, Dan Merle, um, who is, is the final member of this new faction. What did you think about this reveal, Scott? I think that, you know, the, the actual result of the reveal was, was pretty surprising itself. I mean, a lot of people have been speculating about Merle coming back, but I, I definitely wasn't expecting it in this way. But I also think just the way that the reveal was staged was, was pretty satisfying. What was, what was your reaction? Yeah, I think to call it epic would be completely fair. To, to, I, mean, what, I mean, even if you don't have Merle, right? Like, it's pretty epic. I mean... Inman joining a faction is a big deal just because he has been pretty dominant in the inner geekdom for the last yeah. eight, nine months. And then you have Riley, who I think everyone is inconsistent that, like, you know, he'll play some matches, but he's probably going to manage the faction more than anything. That would um, be my guess as well. Right, like, probably some combination of him and Roka managing the faction. But then, of course, when you get, and that in and of itself is epic because, you know, all four of those people are, are former champions. And then you add in a fifth person, Dan Merle, probably the most revered of of people in the Schmodown. Uh, with you know, with all due respect to, to Sam Levine, who's who's building quite a name for himself, who at some point may be considered better than than Dan Merle. He's yeah, not. He's some, not. Some people already think he is. But yeah, newcomers like yeah, newcomers like me might might be more inclined to think that Sam Levine sure. is is the goat, just because I, I never I well, I wasn't I a. Think there's a good Sure, and I and I wasn't and I wasn't a contemporary of Merle, so to speak, in terms of watching the Schmodown. I've seen a few matches with them in it now, but I never watched them contemporaneously. Is that the right word? Uh, um, concurrently, maybe is the better word. Um, concurrently, when they were being released. That being said, now we have a world in which Dan Merle and Sam Levine can go up against each other, and that's that's pretty awesome in and of itself. And then, to, but to also have Dan Merle as a part of a sort of heel faction but like not really i mean even if if, if those labels even matter who even who cares I, um, yeah, I mean i definitely think it's going to be more of a face faction than it is a heel faction because like you know top 10 has basically cemented themselves as uh faces at this point like jason inman has never really toyed with being a heel Same he's with the Riley. people's champion right so yeah um so i think this is definitely going to be a face faction especially when you think about 
you know, before this, you really had you had two major heel factions with the Lions Den and the Viper Squad, but you really only had the Fife Club when it came to faces because the league is now sort of dissolved with Kalinowski going off the deep end. So I think it makes sense that this is going to be a face faction. But it also means that the face factions are very... uh, Overpowered. They're OP. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Um, Because, I mean, you know, the Viper Squad have played pretty well this season. Um, Two of their members are going to be going up in a triple threat match at the collision against Mark Andrako. Uh, the Lions did haven't really had a great year. You know, we do have Snyder, who who will have a number one contender match against Bibbs um, in a couple weeks. But you know, Patriots lost the belt. Ken lost the Star Wars belt, and then couldn't even make it to the uh, title match again. Um, so, and you know, but then you look at the Fife Club. That's actually one of the things which I thought was interesting about this reveal is that you know the Fife Club just won this huge match. The Shire Wolves winning a huge match. You know, they're kind of on top of the world uh, right now. And then we get this new faction featuring the current Intergeekdom champion and three former singles champions. And then also Matt Nost, who's just there. But uh, <laughs> and then Matt Nost, who's but, just there. Okay, give him some credit. He's former team champion. He, he, he has a belt. And Roca, and and Roca, you know, although he was he was on a roll for a little while, uh, post his loss in in teams to to the Patriots for the twenty billionth time, uh, you know, he he took out he took out JTE. Uh, he played someone else too, right? Am I am I? He lost to Snyder. He lost well, to Snyder. No, yeah, I know he lost to Snyder, but I thought he had beaten someone else besides JTE. Um, maybe he did. Alex Wolf. <laughs> yeah. That was an incredible match, though. We haven't talked about that. That yeah. was a great match. Um, anyway, yeah, but, you know, Roca, Roca's not the powerhouse that he used to be. Like, realistically, he may never get another title shot. Uh, he, like, the league is just too competitive these days, and, and you know, it, it's, it is difficult to win three matches in a row. And, you know, that's generally what it takes in order to get a title shot. And Roca is a strong competitor. There's no doubt about that. I just think that in a league where you have Jeff Schneider or Jeff Snyder, who I don't think is underrated. I think he's a very strong competitor or in a league where you have Rachel Cushing, you have Clark Wolf, you know, I'm missing some really like Bibiani, McWeenie, Irwin. Like you can't win three matches in a row in this league feasibly. Like Sam Levine may like, uh, you know, he's going to, I mean, every match he plays, he's going to be defending his belt, his belts at this point because he has both of them. But it's 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 hugely advantageous that he doesn't have to work his way back up to the top, you know, every single time. Now, now of course, you know, we'll see. How, and, and, you know, if he defends it long enough, he'll get an automatic rematch. And so it's a huge advantage for him. And he deserves it because he's an incredible competitor. But, it, you know, if you're if you're on the outside looking in, it is tough to get a title shot in this league. Yeah, uh, that, that is very true. So I, w- uh, I was saying about that about Roka, but I think that also applies to I mean, I don't know if anyone thinks that Riley is, is a legitimate contender for a title shot again, just because of, I mean, if anything, because of just such a poor performance in the free-for-all that he had. But, yeah, uh, you know, it, it, it's a small sample size. Um, oh, definitely. I definitely think that Riley is one of the strongest players in Schmodown history, and I tend to lean more on the side of he's still got it. 
I mean, there's no, there's no reason why he shouldn't still have it. I mean, he's he works for Collider. He reviews recent movies. It's not like he's getting stale on movies. And it hasn't really been like that long. Like he he played all the way up until the Team Ultimate Showdown last year, um, and after the Wolves of Steel were finally beaten by Above the Line, that was when he announced his retirement. Um, so it hasn't been like too terribly long. And I mean, you know, if he does decide to play. I think he could still be a very big contender in this league. Yeah, no, I, I, I totally agree. It's possible. Just you think about all the all the names. I mean, we didn't even mention Ben Bateman, who's also an incredibly strong competitor. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's going to be tough. They're going to have to earn it. it. The league is so much bigger these days, and there are easy, like top to bottom in terms of the top 10 like you know you go from you know the number 1 contender to the number 10 contender you're looking at very stiff competition it's not easy to get on that list yeah, and the ultimate showdown singles is going to be fun this year absolutely and then you know just briefly i would love to i love it. i i don't know if it's if it would happen but i i wonder if there would be another uh team on the on the five horsemen i wonder if riley and merle would would go into teams together um well Many have pointed out that in the original Team Ultimate Showdown, all the way back in 2015, before they even came to Collider, uh, Riley and Merle were a team called Team Champs. Uh, because at that time, Riley was the singles champion and Merle was the movie fights champion over at Screen Junkies. So they called themselves Team Champs. Um, yet, surprisingly, they didn't end up winning the the team tournament. They were beaten, I believe, by the Schmoes, who went on to win the whole team tournament. Um but, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, many have pointed out that they were a team before, and now they're in the same faction. So maybe they'll, they'll try it again. No, and I was saying I think that's, that's feasible. Because, and the point I was making is that the team division, if, you're, if we're being honest, is, is, is weaker than the singles division yeah. in terms of just sheer numbers, right? Like, you know, you, the, you get, I mean, you have a really strong top tier with, obviously, above the line, the Patriots, critically acclaimed i think that extends to modok the shire wolves uh you know you, you have a strong top five or so world's finest yeah. world's finest absolutely so that's fair so top five or six teams but after that it really falls off and you got the wild berries i mean they're a powerhouse <laughs> yeah that's true and undefeated in 2018 that's all i'll say elliot dewberry and josh mccuga the wild berries um Wildberries. yeah you know tpublic.com you can buy their t-shirts guys uh, free endorsement right there. Uh, anyway, yeah, I think that it's important to 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 think about that. And and if you throw top ten, uh, who's reeling from their loss to the Patriots, although that you know they're back in the they're back in the mix now, right? That they, yeah, uh, they are, that the Patriots have lost, they can now get a title shot again. Yeah. Um, but if you have them, and then if you have if there is a reincarnation of team champs, you know they would be strong competitors. So they might have more of a chance of getting a team belt than a singles belt. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and with, on the topic of strong competitors, let's talk about what we think is going to go down at the Collider Collision, um, in a few weeks, um, uh, July 13th. And I say what we think is going to go down because some things are still being you know, worked out. Like we were expecting to have five matches and I think we're still going to have five matches. Um, but just today it was announced that Sam Whitwer, um, is not going to be able to defend the Star Wars belt as um, was expected he was going to at the collision, which, I mean, I guess is understandable when you consider Sam Whitworth is probably, I mean, may, maybe the, the biggest 
celebrity, quote unquote, who is like playing in the Schmodown League right now. Uh, I mean, you know, Sam Levine obviously had his day back in the nineties, um, but yeah, I mean, uh, especially if you're if you're tuned in the Star Wars universe, Sam Witwer is a very familiar name. He yeah. he's on. I mean, he voices lots of different characters in the animated show. He voiced uh, none other than. Uh, is it? Is it? Ah, maybe we won't spoil that. He voices a character in, in Solo, a Star Wars story. For any of you listening who haven't seen that yet, who might see it, uh, we'll we'll keep that anonymous. What character that is, because it is a spoiler. But Sam Witwer is very famous, and, and you know he's recently he's he's stretching his wings a little bit. He's the lead the lead voice actor in a new PlayStation uh, Sony exclusive game coming out uh, early 2019 called Days Gone, which is not a Star Wars game. Um, but yeah, he's 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 probably the most yeah. he's definitely the most active actor or actress in, in, in the Schmodown. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so that's why it's perhaps not surprising that he isn't going to be able to work it into a schedule to be at the collision. Um, but Christian has decided that since since Whitmer can't defend the belt, um, he, has, he has vacated the belt. Um, and that Alex Damon, who won the number one contender match, is going to face an open challenge um, from somebody at the collision. Yep. Um, you know, we were speculating today that we kind of hope it, it it's Christian like that. We thought that that would be a really epic uh, twist if Harloff, I mean, I don't think Harloff, even though he is a big Star Wars guy, I don't think he'd be able to beat Alex Damon. Um, but I still think it would be uh, a cool matchup to see Harloff re-enter the ring um, for yep. this number one contender match, or for this title match, rather. Yeah, uh, we, we were both texting about it, and I agree. That's the, that's the ideal outcome for me. But, you know, we'll see. We'll see. Yeah, but let's talk about the matches which we do know are set. There are four of them that are set right now, and I want to just get your thoughts on who you think might win these matches. Um, so first of all, we have the triple threat singles um, match between Stacey Howard, Janine the Machine, and Mark the Android and Draco. The winner of this match will get Ethan Irwin in a number one contender match. Um probably sometime a little bit down the road because we still have another number one contender and title match to get to before we get there. Um, it's a, it's, it's, like a fa- it's a fatal three-way for the title, I think. It would be more fun. You have, If you had Ethan Irwin, uh, Jeff Snyder, Snyder and guess. Sam Levine. And, uh, oh, is that, that, that isn't confirmed, right? Or are you just speculating about that? Oh, I'm just saying that would be, that'd be just be ludicrous yeah, and, and be, hilarious. If that, that would be pretty epic. No, that um, that's definitely with, not confirmed. Yeah. <laughs> if you ended up with Bibbs, Irwin, and Sam Levine, oh my gosh. But anyway, um, yeah, so who do you think is going to take this triple threat match home? I mean, these are three players who have played really well this year. I think that they've uh, definitely earned um, their, uh, their right to play in, in this high quality of a match. Who do you like in this one? Yeah, I... I like Stacey Howard for it, honestly. I know that she's on your fantasy team, so you're loving me, hearing me say this right now. Um, I I just don't... I think it's a weird triple threat match, to be honest. I don't yeah. really fully understand how it was constructed. Getting two members of the Viper Squad against each other makes me think that something is going to go down with their faction, regardless of what happens in this match. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I mean, they both can't win the match, so... I guess I I don't know. It's really strange. I think that the, there's no reason to have this match the way it is unless like there was some plot line going on there. I mean, there's the constant. Ri- I mean, I get why 
Mark and yeah, Draco's I mean, in this because the there's yeah the five Viper Squad rivalries is is real. Um, they've been really hamming on that for the past yeah, for few months. Reason, it, just, it seems so hard. Like and, and, and Draco like never seems to get matches for some reason. Well, yeah, that's so, what I was gonna say because I was like I was like Mark I, I can't say Mark and Draco has earned a number like this this like fa- this you know um, triple threat match because he's played like one match this year. Yeah, I think he beat Ben Bateman. Yeah, and he's been around a lot. I mean, and, yeah, and to I be fair, Ben Bateman. Yeah, I mean Ben Ben Bateman. To be fair, is a it's a good win. Like I think that, it, yeah, he is not a he is not a pushover by any stretch of the imagination. I actually think very highly of him, and but it's weird because he's just like now randomly in this triple threat match with Stacey Howard, who I think probably has earned it from her wins, but. And then Janine, I mean, I I guess I get it, and I do think that she's good, but she hasn't been really given any real test yet, unless I'm forgetting who she's played. Are you talking about Janine? Yeah, she played Emma Fife, and she played... She played Emma Fife, and uh, she played Bonnie Somerville, so yeah. Yeah, so it's now weird to me that she's she's in a match with, like, Mark Andreka, who beat Ben Bateman, and Stacey Howard... I mean, if she were to win this match, she would be 3-0, and and then she would get the number one contender match, and, yeah. she, you know... Could be four and going into the title, which I think is perfectly fair. No, I'm not. I'm not saying her record isn't yeah. justifiable for the match. It's totally justifiable for the match. You're right. Yeah. No, it makes perfect sense. But I'm saying the quality of her competitors, yeah, like there, true. there are other people who are two and zero, right, in this league that aren't in this triple threat. I could be wrong there. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, I, I definitely agree with that, and I think that I don't really think that. She is a threat in this match. Um, you know, I do like Stacy, um, not just because she's on my fantasy team. I've always enjoyed her in the past. We share a birthday, so that's great. Um, <laughs> that's good. But I, you know, she's she's like a very like streaky player. Like obviously, we saw her like she had a great match against Mark Ellis last year in the Ultimate Showdown and upset him. But then in the next round, she got KO'd by Rachel Cushing didn't even make it to the third round and like you know the match recent her last match against makuga she did win the match but like did not play very well um and i was actually kind of disappointed with how she played in that match so i don't think that she's going to be able to stack up against andraco's knowledge in this match and honestly i think considering that the winner gets ethan Irwin, i would like to see andraco win this because i think he's the only one of these three who's really going to be able to challenge ethan well that's what i was going to say too i just feel like i mean i don't think that i think that all of these three people like maybe deserve to be like to deserve to have a triple threat match for a number one contender at the same time i think there's like a clear favorite in this match and i just i'm just going with stacy just because i feel like oh like She's gonna like, like you said. She's very streaky. She can pull answers out of nowhere sometimes and, and really hit a run. Uh, and that being said, she like her her two two of her matches this year have been RB three and Makuga, who are not again like not the stiffest of competition. But yeah. you can only beat the people in front of you, and so that's what she's done. And so she's here, and now she has to beat someone who is a little bit more formidable. And that's uh, I think I think Janine is is I think both Janine and Andreco, but particularly Andreco, are more formidable than the competition she's faced so far. Maybe yeah, maybe maybe I'm I'm underselling uh, Josh McCuga's talents. I don't know. <laughs> you know he does have his moments. That's for sure. He pulls answers um, out of nowhere. Let's move to the team title match. Iron Man. Thirty minutes between 
the yeah, this Patriots one, and above the line. This one's easy. I think above the line ab- are going to absolutely annihilate the Patriots in the Iron Man match. This is a very smart move by Sam Levine. I think that he yeah. and he and Drew uh, crush round one like it's no one's business. And it's right up their alley. Especially once it gets to the buzzers, too. Yeah, I would not be surprised to see above the line kind of run away with this. I mean, you know, the Patriots have had some magic in the past, but they have been dethroned now. So yeah, I, 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 I'm actually, I, I may end up coming back in our post-collision uh, podcast and eating and like really having my foot in my mouth here. But like, I'm concerned that this is like a, a Germany Brazil like just smackdown. <laughs> it could be. It no, could I'm, be. I'm serious. Like, I'm, I'm actually a little worried about this. That this is not, this is not a format that that suits the Patriots well. I don't think. Yeah, um, but I mean, I certainly wouldn't be sorry to see them lose. I like Jeff Snyder. Yeah, I mean, they're they're a great team to have in the league, of course. Uh, I yeah, I just so. I just think that I wouldn't be sad to see. That. I mean, let me be very clear. I I will be cheering for above the line, but I yeah. I don't want to feel uncomfortable while watching the match. Yes. Yes. Very fair. Like. Like we felt in the Rachel Cushing versus Marquia match recently. Oh, I don't know what you're talking about. I was I was into that. <laughs> <laughs> oh yes, very competitive match. Um, yeah. But now let's I thought you were. I thought over. honestly, I thought you were going to say Kalinowski back in like the triple threat he had with JT and Rachel Cushing. I felt very uncomfortable oh, yeah. for him well, in that. And, I mean, Kalinowski did pretty much destroy Jared Haybon this past weekend. That was well. honestly that was that was hot. <laughs> yeah. Um, but let's talk about another match, which I think is probably going to be destruction. Um, so I think the question between Dan Merle and Andrew Guy is not who's going to win the match, but will Guy make it up in the second round? Okay, before before we talk about this, can we just entertain the idea of what on earth things would be like if Andrew Guy beats Dan Merle? <laughs> oh, it would be the greatest upstage part on history, without a doubt. I mean, there have been some big ones in the past, but like nothing would compare to... Andrew Guy, who isn't even a good player, like in the in the live match, I think he missed like the first four questions in round one. Yeah, he wasn't doing Ben Bateman any favors in the live match, that's for sure. Yeah, but yeah, so for him to beat, you know, the goat on his return to the Schmodown would be like like I what mean, it, it would be like what is the black season. what is the backup plot line that like Christian and the writers have developed for if Guy wins? That's what yeah, I want to know. They probably haven't even written one. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I think this one is pretty clearly like, I mean, you know, not saying that it's 100% going to happen, but, you know, I think it's pretty much a surefire lock picking Merle. Is this, this like a stipulation even, match or like a retirement match? Like for like whoever loses has to go into retirement? Oh, I don't, I don't, there's no way they would force Merle into retirement <laughs> after, after this huge reveal of him coming back. And the same with Andrew Guy who like, Christian has been going off on his Q&As recently about how great he thinks Andrew Guy is and how he's, he thinks he's like the best performer that they have in the league right now. That's probably pretty um, fair. I mean, he and Ben Bateman are, I think, probably are the best performers in the league. Yeah. Yeah. Um, like, so for example, the Merle reveal at the collision, he said he basically just told Andrew Guy to go out there and improv. Like, that whole sort of bit. I mean, there was a little bit written down, but... Most of that was just Andrew Guy going off the cuff um, in the build-up to that reveal. So that shows you what he can bring to the table. Yep. Uh, and then the, the final match we're going to have is an Intergeekdom match in the Intergeekdom tournament, which Mike Kalinowski has... Uh, orchestrated. Yeah, and it's still orchestrating. Um, and it's going to be Rachel Cushing against Eric Zipper. 
I think I know who you're going to take in this one, but who you got? Uh, Rachel Cushing. Yeah, she's she's on a mission in her kingdom. Um, I, I'm still waiting on my before. on my Harry Potter Iron Man match with Rachel Cushing. Oh, and, and Emma Fife. Yeah, that, I, that I think be... okay. Fife really just bombed a Harry Potter question in her inner geekdom match, and like she, I'm I'm not also, I now doubt her Harry Potter skills. Yeah, she works at the Wizarding World of Harry Potter as well. So okay, well that's a cheat code probably. Yeah, uh, I would say that she knows a little bit, but that that would definitely be a fun one going forward. But yeah, I gotta go with Rachel in this one, especially after what she did to Marquia. Not that Marquia was uh, a very high quality player, but. Uh, I think she really, really, really entered some belt, and I think she she will right now. Although Kalinowski could, uh, yeah. yeah. When it comes down to the finals of of this interdiction tournament, before the winner plays Jason Inman, I I do really hope it's Rachel Cushing and Kalinowski. Yeah, uh, you know, I I could see maybe Donica sneaking in there, but I think all roads are leading towards that at the moment. Well, I'll have my fingers crossed for it. Yeah, so there you go. That is what is going on in the Schmodown. Um, obviously, uh, a lot going on, and uh, we look forward to the collision coming up in a few weeks. Absolutely. Um, before we close things out tonight, uh, we do have a few news items to get to. Um, starting off with a couple of Star Wars-related items. Um, first of all, this is pr- probably the biggest Star Wars story to come out in a while. Oh, um, pun intended there, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, you did say Star, a Star Wars story, uh, so it worked yeah, out. Yeah, yeah. But Disney has um, decided to put the Star Wars spinoffs on hold after the, uh, I guess you could say, box office failure. I mean, it still made a lot of money, but... No, uh, it, didn't, it didn't break even. It didn't break even. Yeah, so. for, for Solo, a Star Wars story. So that means that, you know, we'll still get Episode Nine next year and then, you know, future trilogy at some point, but... Yes. The spin-off movies that they had planned. I'm guessing this includes the Boba Fett movie that was. I think this is only the Boba Fett movie, to be honest. Okay. I think. Yeah. I mean, unless I'm unless I'm really interpreting this wrong, like whatever John Favreau is doing for Disney's like uh, Netflix plat like Netflix like platform subscription platform. Like I'm pretty sure that doesn't affect that. I think that it definitely doesn't affect what. Um, oh shoot! I'm already forgetting episode eight's director's name. Ryan. Ryan Johnson. Ryan Johnson. It doesn't affect his trilogy. I can't imagine. I mean, it's definitely not going to affect. Obviously, obviously, it's not going to affect episode nine. Um, but it, I think it's just scrapping. You know, we only, of course, only Boba Fett was the only one announced. But there, I'm sure they had probably three or four in production. Yeah, presumably. That, yeah, in the in the in the bowels of of Disney, I'm, I'm sure they had Obi Wan and and some other random and, and and solo sequels. I mean, honestly, they probably had solo sequels teed up. Um, yeah, but those those have been placed on hold for now yeah that i don't know about you scott but that that makes me pretty sad i do think that solo has been unfairly maligned uh largely in part due to the backlash of episode eight and also just kind of the 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 close proximity of this movie to episode eight which ruffled some feathers in the star wars fandom to say the least yeah which is yeah very disappointing i definitely think that that did have an effect on why this movie didn't do as well and that's really disappointing because I actually thought that The Last Jedi was was great and that a lot of the people who you know had their feathers ruffled by it are kind of like being way too 
traditional about Star Wars and like just where, where it didn't didn't like the some of the risks and some of the changes that Ryan Johnson imposed. But I think that, you know, this franchise is 40, 45 years old now. And like, you got to be reinventing yourself constantly if you want to stay fresh. And I think that that was one of the things I really liked about The Last Jedi. But yeah, that, and, 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 and also these these spinoff movies, I thought like exactly yes. to that point are exactly that kind of refresh, that palate cleanser that you get between that that we that we did get between different uh, we'll call it mainline the you know the different mainline episodes of the sequel trilogy and like Rogue One great like I really really enjoyed Rogue One for different reasons I also really enjoyed Solo like it's still a, it's a movie I saw twice in theaters which you know I go to a lot of movies but I don't often go see that many movies multiple times in the theaters and I think it speaks to that that I went and saw it twice it's enjoyable yes it's not the same as 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 a any really honestly any of the other star wars movies but i like that and i knew what i want like i knew what to expect going in and sure like did it disappoint me in some aspects yeah i did i mean we talked about that on this podcast but it was still a good movie and it still it does not deserve one the box office failure that it has been and also the the fan uh i guess you know fan i don't even know what the right word would be just like i feel like there's a very niche set of star wars fans yeah i mean backlash is almost even not the right word in my mind but you know there's a very niche group of fans here have been very set on tanking star wars after episode eight who are just really dissatisfied with the direction that ryan johnson took and uh you know sinking the the fan score on rotten tomatoes for example uh, and and that was also the case for episode eight as well after the initial reaction. Yeah, and that actually transitions right into our the other Star Wars news item we have, which is you you probably saw this circulating around on Twitter, but there's this Twitter account which has been started to try and completely remake the Last Jedi <laughs> um, yeah. in a in a way that I guess will appease more traditional Star Wars fans. Um, and I, I think even Ryan Johnson, like, quote tweeted the tweet and was saying, like, please do this, please remake this, um, which I thought was kind of funny. Um, at, the, yeah, at this just, point, to like on this note too, like, I really don't have a good sense of this. Maybe you have a better sense of this. Maybe like, is this a vocal minority of people who don't like Episode Eight, or is like the majority of Star Wars fans think that Episode Eight isn't that good? I mean, it seems more than I initially thought because, of course, we also had what happened with. Kelly Marie Tran. Um, oh yeah, that was garbage. We talked about like, we talked about that news story on this podcast, I think, about her yeah, being forced into delete her Instagram basically by fans of the last or by by Star Wars fans who were harassing her about the Last Jedi. Yeah. Um, so I definitely think there's probably a a, a a larger group of people of of dissenters than I had originally thought. Um, right. Right. Yeah. Um, okay. So then a couple other um, items which I had down were, um, you know, this is one we've been following, but Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which is, of course, um, Tarantino's next movie um, about the Manson family, has added a whole slew of new cast members, um, just to name a few, Al Pacino, Kurt Russell, Damian Lewis, Dakota Fanning, Brad Pitt, James Marsden, and Scoot McNary have all been added. Um, Brad Pitt's not surprising. Yeah, Damian Lewis is actually going to be playing Steve McQueen, I believe I saw. Um, Steve McQueen's getting a lot of a lot of action this year. Isn't is, he, he? is there another movie coming out about him? I 
maybe not. Maybe I'm misremembering. I could be wrong there. Yeah, I'm not sure. And then Al Pacino, I think he's playing a, a real person as well. I think most people in this movie are actually playing a real person. Um, but, you know, obviously a huge cast. I mean, Tarantino is known for having really good cast, but this might even be his the most star-studded one he's assembled yet because, of course, we also have uh, Leonardo DiCaprio and Margo Robbie who have already been cast. Yeah, just absurd. I mean, Tarantino's the name, you know, he, he can pull down a, a cast, that's for yep, sure. Yeah, absolutely, even after all this time, he people still know what they're getting with him. Um, and then finally, um, I have in the news section the, the strange saga of, of a movie called Gotti. Um, oh, also, by the way, on I, I was just quickly Googling around, because I, I knew Steve McQueen had yeah. named it come somewhere. He, he, his next movie is coming out this year. Uh, that's, that's where I'm remembering it from. Uh, Widows is his next movie. Um, Are we talking about Steve McQueen, the director, now? Yeah, that's why that's why it popped up in my head. Not that Steve McQueen oh, okay. that you're talking about. Well, yeah, that, so this is, to, to clarify, Daniel yeah. Lewis will be playing Steve McQueen, the actor. Um, yeah, no, sorry, I realized that was also ambiguous, but that's why the name popped up in my head, because yeah, sure, I had seen sure. the other day where his new movie, his next movie is coming out. You know, the last time he directed, Steve, Steve McQueen, the director, the last time he directed a movie was 12 Years a Slave, I believe. 12 Years a Slave, yeah, sure. uh, Yeah, and his next movie is coming out this uh, later this year in around Thanksgiving, and it's called Widows, and it's a screenplay by himself uh, and Gillian Flynn, actually. Um, oh, that's right. I think I did see something about that. Yeah, and the ensemble cast includes... It looks really good. Yeah, I mean, the cast itself just looks absurd. It's Viola Davis and Michelle Rodriguez um, along I with... I think I saw the trailer for this. I oh. think it was before American Animals. Oh, may- maybe. I haven't seen the trailer for it. But, uh, yeah, Col- it actually it looks really good. It has Colin uh, Farrell and Daniel Kaluuya and Robert Duvall, Liam Neeson. Like yes, the- yes, yes. I definitely saw the trailer for Yeah, this. no, it looks in- insane. And scored by Hans Zimmer. I'm not sure if you're a Hans Zimmer fan, Scott, but uh, I am. I do like him from time to time. <laughs> from time to time. Um, not not for Lord of the Rings, probably. But- oh, no, that's a Howard Shore. Sorry. No, 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 Hans Zimmer. Howard Shore does Lord of the Rings. Never mind. Yeah. Um... But yeah, anyway, so the final item which I wanted to touch on was this strange saga of this movie called Gaudi, um, <laughs> God. which has just kind of been a disaster. Like, John Travolta has been trying to get this movie made for years now. Um, it's, it's a biopic about the mobster John Gotti. Um, it's gone through, like, four directors, and eventually we've ended up with Kevin Conroy, who is primarily known as being one of the lead actors on Entourage. Like, that's his main claim to fame. But he somehow ended up as the name director on this Wait, movie. who did you um, say? Who did you say is directing it? Kevin Conroy, I believe is his name. Kevin Conroy? Do you, do you mean Kevin Connolly? Is it Connolly? That's the actor from Entourage, if that's who... Unless I, unless there's another Kevin on Yes, it is Kevin, it is Kevin Connolly. I just mixed his name up. Um, but yeah, he so he somehow he has ended up as the director on this movie, which I think probably tells you all you need to know about... Uh, what a disaster it's been trying to get this movie made. Um, they didn't even screen it for critics, um, which is a, never a good sign. Uh, but then when some reviews started coming out, uh, they had the, the ire to, they had, they had the gall to uh, express some ire at critics uh, because they pointed to Rotten Tomatoes and said, oh, well, it has a 0% on the critic score, but it has a 70-something on the audience score, which... You can never really read too much into the audience score because you can be you can rate them this movie uh, like before it even comes out. 
Like you can you can basically give this movie an audience score based on what your hype is for this movie. Mm-hmm. So the fact that this movie had a seventy something audience score doesn't really indicate very much about the quality of the movie. Um, but so they put out all these ads on Twitter saying, "Oh, it's a movie that the critics don't want you to see," um, and almost like Trump esque lingo, like uh, <laughs> the way that they went after the fake news media um, and, and you know. The, f- the fact that they would dare claim that this movie wasn't very good, um, this movie which has been in the making for years and wasn't even screened for critics, like mm-hmm. it seems like they knew it wasn't going to be good, and yet they're still somehow salty about it. But um, but then it's interesting because of this campaign, some critics um, have actually now been to see it. Of course, they've had to pay to see it, but um, a few more have have gone to see it. Um, just to see where all the hype is about. And basically what I'm seeing from the reviews is that it's not even so bad, it's good. It's just like so aggressively mediocre um, that it's just like there's no enjoyment that could be had watching this movie whatsoever. Uh, But I thought that it it was kind of an amusing story um, considering how long this movie has been in the works. Yeah, I don't really have much to add because that that speaks for itself. (laughs) Yeah, Um, and so I think that should just about do it for this week's episode. Um, Scott, where can our lovely listeners find you on Twitter? You can find me at at SShelton2013. I'm tweeting mainly just at you at this point. I've I've gone a little quiet on Twitter. since since getting out of school it's in, which has been more than a year now wow um but yeah. i don't know who knows maybe the world's cup i i have vacation coming up next week and with the world cup i might get more active with some with some soccer tweets because i'll actually be able to watch the knockout rounds yeah well i look forward to that and of course you can find me at scarvey dent you know that i'll be tweeting no matter what's going on um, <laughs> and we hope that you've enjoyed this episode of the show um if you have and you'd like to support the show, please don't forget about our Patreon page. Um, but if you don't, if you choose not to support our Patreon, that is okay too. Uh, we would love it if you rated it and reviewed us on iTunes so that we can continue to grow our listener base. And we hope you will be back for our next episode in a couple of weeks' time on which we will be reviewing Jurassic World, The Fallen Kingdom, and Ant-Man and the Wasp. For now, I'm Scott Harvey. Uh, For Scott Shelton, we will see you next time. See you guys.